It's the same old story. It's been a long day at the job, or maybe it's just starting to feel long. And you feel that urge to stretch your legs and get a little bit of a break. You walk down the street, or maybe you get behind the wheel of your car, and you feel the weight begin to lift. You walk through the doors, and the sound of the place starts to clear the air. You get a table, you order your drink, you listen to the sounds of the bar, and soak in the conversation. Welcome to the TNE Speakeasy, with your hosts, Eric, Isaac, and Caleb. Listen in as they discuss the 1958 film, The Hidden Fortress. Welcome back, ladies, gentlemen, those in between and unaffiliated to a, another miniseries, I suppose. And this one, this one, oh, we have been waiting for, Caleb and I have been waiting for this one for quite a long time. Caleb, are you excited that we are finally here? Oh yeah, three years. Three years has taken us and we're finally here and yeah, I'm, I'm very glad to eventually get my THX 1138 Blu-ray back. <laughs> Uh, yeah, just uh, just looking away from uh, imagining that I didn't actually still have it in my room anyway, and I'm looking at it right now. Anyways, um, so I, I don't know how we would have done this originally. We probably would have done a commentary, and it would have been filled with dead air and oh, stuff that yeah. I wouldn't have like known to say, so I would have embarrassed myself, but thankfully we have three people here, so we can uh, keep the conversation going, and uh, here's hoping that, knock on wood, uh, we will not go the length of this film. Because it's, it's a long film, but, you know, usually, uh, I'll admit myself, uh, it, I tend to just extend these things uh, past their due. <laughs> oh, no, that's interesting you mentioned that. Yeah, how would it have turned out if we'd done it back then? Because I think it was only a, a few months later when we did our first uh, non-commentary episode. Yeah. So, yeah, we would have still been in that mode. It probably would have been a uh, scene by scene if that at that point, but uh, who knows? Eric, um, we are glad that you are here with us tonight. Thank you for uh, deciding to join us with this. Um, when was the first time you watched the Hidden Fortress, and how did, did did somebody recommend it to you, or is it one of those things cultural osmosis, like everybody talks about it, so you're like, I gotta go out and watch it. So it was approximately 25 years ago. That makes sense. Mm, that explains some <laughs> things for me. i'm curious i have an idea what that might be but um yeah it was approximately 25 years ago probably on vhs as to why i sought it out yeah it was a little mixture of reasons yes it's true part of it was hearing about its connection to star wars but it definitely wasn't only that um in those days the late 90s I was going on a bit of a, well, two things were going on me in the very late 90s as it pertained to movie watching, um, especially at home, which is I was definitely steering more into Asian cinema, primarily Chinese and Japanese, um, but also because of a random purchase I had picked up at Suncoast one day, uh, <laughs> which was like a samurai ronin type movie 
And I was like so blown away by it that just based on like that one movie, I just started checking out just some samurai stuff in general. So those are probably the main main two. Like the, just that my having my interest focused in that genre combined with hearing about the Star Wars connection and hearing about the director who I was aware of at the time, but I was just like newly aware of Akira Kurosawa and who he was. So that, yeah, that was another thing. Yeah. And I'm curious, had you gone back to it over the years or was it just that one viewing? And then again today, that's basically the best way to explain it. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Isaac, I guess I'll skip the line. Cause I'll say, uh, just, just in terms of not giving my final thoughts yet, but to explain my statement from earlier. Yeah, because coming into this, uh, Eric, for I guess a couple of years now, has been stressing that, oh yeah, you know, people need to go back and watch this, and when they watch Star Wars New Hope, it's not going to be, oh, this is like a, a clear influence. It's like, yeah, almost theft or a carbon copy to some degree, that they're so close. But I, I, I mean, maybe Eric, you'd still argue that having rewatched it. But I, I think that there, the resemblance is rather thin. It comes down to a couple character elements, really. But yeah, so, so knowing that you watched all that that time ago, I could see how maybe your memories would shade it different. This is what I thought. This is what I thought you were gonna say. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it definitely was a bit of a revelation, which I'll explain more to see it again now. But quickly to address that. Because I was trying to think, how could my memory be so off? The best I could think at this point is I must have seen another samurai film around the same time as Hidden Fortress. And I think I may have combined memories of the two films together. Because there was definite scenes I remember in my head that were not in this movie. Like when I watched it now. I don't think I dreamt up those scenes. So that's why that's my theory is that I must be combining another samurai film into it. No, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And maybe when we, maybe when we do our star Wars uh, discussion, I'll look more into the influences and see if I can track down what that might've been. Dune. Uh, uh, again, very loose, very loose uh, connections there as well. Just little sprinkles of influence. Pretty intense sprinkles. I, I don't think so, but maybe we can get into that some other time. <laughs> um, but for me, I'll say, uh, yeah, I came to watch this today because we were doing this discussion, but I would have gotten to it relatively soon because I think it was, uh, wow, it may have been last summer, actually, that I started my watch through of going through all of his films, Akira Kurosawa. Um, I think at this point I've seen 13 or 14 of them. And I had to unfortunately skip ahead in the line uh, four films to get to this. I wasn't I wasn't quite at this this film yet, uh, but oh boy, I've been enjoying this this watch through, and I'm very excited to get the chance to uh, talk about them a little bit here with this film. Uh, but how about you, Isaac? What's your experience with this film? Yeah, I completely forgot to mention like, hey, ladies and gentlemen, between affiliated, this is our first Kurosawa film. We like you know we're over yeah. 200 episodes in, and we finally got to him. Uh, which is great. It means that, you know, we still have, we, we haven't even gotten to like, you know, many of the other big directors. That's, that's the whole point. We're mm-hmm. not going to like chase trends or anything like that. We're doing our own thing, which is great. Um, and yeah, I know I've been wanting to, we, we've been talking about doing a Kurosawa 
retrospective for you know like since the beginning of uh, this channel. So it's not like we haven't got to him. We'll get we'll get to everything. Don't worry. We're gonna we're gonna do as much as we can as as long as we keep breathing and we still have interest, which we still do. Um, so as my first, I guess Kurosawa film again, like you probably like through cultural osmosis, you probably don't think there's when they did uh, Empire of Dreams the. Um, documentary pertaining to the original uh trilogy's makings uh they did mention this obviously there's a few scenes from that um that were put in there but they mostly just skipped kind of through that uh mm-hmm. and like and like what eric said uh, whenever we were discussing i don't remember which episode of star wars it was or prequel um but i remember yeah, i pointed that out uh and eric's like oh yeah it's like shot for shot almost and i kind of figured you were exaggerating so i had that in my mind uh when this was the case but i also had in my mind of okay so kurosawa he's he's had how many how many films has he had to his name Eric caleb uh up to this point or just in general up to this point i guess yeah up to this point and then in general um i think this was his 17th but let me quickly check my uh, 18th 18th, 18th. Film. okay and what was his overall totals uh, for films? Um, the ones that are still available that you can get that are theatrical, I believe, was just 30. 30. Wow. I okay. believe. Quite a workman. Well, quite, a, quite a journeyman uh, when it came to that. Um, now, at the same time, so yeah, this is my first time viewing it. Uh, being lazy, of course, just never getting around to, and always like, I'll watch it later. Like I have plenty of life left in me. I'm going <laughs> to regret that on my deathbed. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I was, I was excited to come to this and I, I was wondering what, I, like I said before, I was wondering if any of this movie is kind of, I'm not going to say Kurosawa poking fun at himself, but, uh, at least, there's some mythology there's history with what he was doing with his other films and so this is like not writing the coattails necessarily but doing something that he's done before but he's doing it differently i wondered that yeah actually in a number of ways that is definitely happening here in some ways i kept uh i even had to go back and rewatch it because i was like wow this this actually feels super close to uh one of his early films uh the men who tread on the lion's tail i believe it was called interesting and it had a, a somewhat of a similar plot element where, yeah, this kingdom, or uh, I don't know what you call it back then, Fife, I don't know. Either way, it fell apart, and it was this uh, general and these monks, or or should I say, uh, like samurais pretending to be monks, trying to ferry this prince off into another place. And so they also had to go through different borders, and there was also like this commoner element that uh, these, these two... Uh, I don't know, I guess you call them like the C-3PO and RTD2 stand-ins or <laughs> analogs later. Yeah, th- this those two kind of characters are something that you see throughout most of Kurosawa's films. Just these kind of lowly commoner types. And not just the samurai ones too, you see them a lot in his contemporary films. Those people are kind of, uh, yeah, just lower in the economic scale and yeah, a little bit fucked up. You know, they got their darker elements. That pops up a lot in his films, so being kind of framed around them this time because usually they're just kind of side characters but to you know we start this movie with them and we end with them that was kind of an evolution on what he's been doing kind of really putting the spotlight rather than just as side bits and the overall tone of this film is is very much more well there's not not that there isn't any drama but it's kind of a little lighthearted. i i found uh you know not, not fully lighthearted, but in like in the end not not really 
you know, whatever spoilers. Uh, in the end, like you know, both both uh, fellow uh, commoners, both of the uh, the jokesters themselves, uh, make it to the end, you know, alive. Uh, and we, you know, obviously the princess and the general, they also make it out there uh, alive. So it kind of is, you know, if we're talking like Shakespeare stuff, which Kurosawa was very heavily influenced, this is one of his comedies. Yeah. And I'll say one of the surprising things about his films is how much he really does throw in unexpected comedy. This one, yeah, it starts with it and it continues all the way through. But so many of his movies, even ones that are really dark, he just finds a way to insert humor in it that feels really natural. So, yeah, I I always appreciate that element of his films. And for this one, I think it, I think right from the start with those two, we get this great kind of almost like a handheld shot, which I thought felt very uh, modern. I felt like it was a little bit uh, ahead of its time, that shot. With these two bickering, uh, I guess, thieves. I thought that there was some funny dialogue just in that little opening there. Yeah. According to all the critics and writers on this film, uh, everyone labels it as a comedy, which I wouldn't have thought on my own, even though I, I get all the humorous elements, of course. I just wouldn't have thought of the movie overall as a comedy, but apparently that is what is agreed upon by everyone because i was thinking okay fine if i'm going to call this a comedy which is fine then i would by that standard i would say like the entire original trilogy of star wars is a comedy um because it doesn't have as much humor but i would say close to this but but whatever yeah you know that is interesting to label it as just like a straight comedy i i wouldn't necessarily say that either but but this does feel, you know, I kept, I, I'm sure you guys noticed on Zencaster here, I put my name as the ugly. I couldn't stop drawing comparisons to Leone's, uh, some of his westerns, and in particular, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, and uh, A Fistful of Dynamite, or A Duck You Sucker, whichever title you want for that one, which is very much in this same tone. There's there's so much humor throughout, and I think people label that as a comedy western, but I more think of it as a western with comedy but very, very much in this tone. Hmm, I hadn't heard that either. But I had time to watch the entire com- Criterion commentary for this movie as well. And whoever penned that commentary, yeah, it was their assertion that um, Good and Bad and the Ugly draws more from this film than A New Hope does. Mm-hmm. Um, which I need to go back and revisit that movie. Uh, but... But... I'm still a little bit suspect because at another point in the commentary, whoever whoever wrote it was saying, oh, and yeah, there's these connections to Star Wars, but I didn't really bring up much because I don't really see much else there. And so then I was like, wait a second, what are you talking about? Because cause he only talked about the point of view characters being the droids. I was like, there's a lot of other parallels than just that. So then that, that put the whole thing in, you know, as suspect to me, like his overall uh, assertion earlier. I don't know. Yeah, and maybe we should just get that out of the way to start, because I don't know if Isaac, if you said in the beginning that this was uh, this little mini-series that we're doing, is the road to Star Wars. It's the, we're going to do this film, and then the two other, uh, or was it three other Lucas films? I can't remember. This road we have, this roadmap B, The Hidden Fortress, uh, THX 1138B, and American Graffiti. I don't remember if we had a fourth one in there or not, okay. but I guess the fourth one was supposed to be A New Hope. I don't remember. <laughs> no Red Tails, Rise of the Guardians. 
This is before 1977. <laughs> We're not doing a George Lucas yeah. retrospective. We're doing a like you know Road to Star Wars 1977. I got you. Yeah. So due to the the Star Wars comparisons, yeah, maybe we should get that out of the way because I I don't think it informs this movie all that much. I can definitely see them. Of course, the C3PO analogs. We get tons and tons of wipes, and Kurosawa loves his wipes. He's been doing that for many years at this point. Um, there's, of course, Princess Leia stand-in, which I feel like that is... You can really feel the the uh, connection there, the DNA put into Princess Leia. I think that's fun. And I guess there's a, a slight Obi-Wan Vader connection there, just a smidge. I don't know. I, I feel like those... Oh, I, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Ah, just a smidge, I think. I think it's a little bit more than a smidge. Oh, well, take it away. Take it away. Well, with that element... Oh, I just want to say up front, though, um, there's also like a little nine-minute feature with George Lucas where he reacts to Kira Kurosawa on the Criterion. Oh. And I thought it was funny when he was talking about this movie in particular because he said, and this was recorded like in like 2001 or something, but he said uh, that his only real... The only real element that he drew upon for Star Wars was again the 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 droid peasant dynamic and from their point of view yada 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 he said yeah there's the princess but he said if anything that's just a coincidence that he wasn't really taking from uh, kurosawa there his reasoning was that kurosawa or the hidden fortress princess is more this um i don't know how he put it but basically he was saying like more of like this open-minded like leader who had nuance and this and that (laughs) whereas his princess was meant to be more just a straight fighter Ah. um so that that's how he was like nah so it's different like it's just a coincidence i had a princess character and i was like okay whatever george i don't know about that (laughs) yeah this guy i swear he doesn't understand his own work (laughs) rewriting history controlling the narrative like at one point luke was supposed to be a girl but they didn't want to have you know two girls in a movie so it's like what geez like oh no like yeah let's save this yeah but if you want to talk more specifically on like obi-wan vader now the obi-wan thing was was more apparent to me um the Vader thing, I, I didn't, it, it didn't really play much in my mind until I was just like reading more, listening to the commentary. Um, so, obviously, um, General Rokurota, obviously he's he's like he is like the mentor figure, he's like the protector, at, but he he's like Obi Wan, but what's interesting or not, he's more like. The Clone Wars Obi-Wan, which I know didn't exist, obviously, um, at the time of A New Hope. Um, then he was the older version of Obi-Wan. But still, definitely, he the general played that role, even if he wasn't exactly like Obi-Wan in A New Hope specifically. Um, and then, yeah, the Vader thing I didn't think too much of, as I said. But, but I mean... Now that I've read about it, and I, it's it's pretty obvious um, that the the opposing general is it Tadakoro, mm-hmm. that one. Yeah. So he is, yeah, he's certainly like the Darth Vader like figure in the movie, and I, that much I picked up on my own uh, watching it now. And then I guess there's the bonus 
of like the redemption arc. But of course that doesn't come into play fully until you know you get to the end of the original trilogy. Um but I think it's really, really fair. And then, you know, those are some of the obvious connections to the original trilogy. And then I just felt the unintentional coincidence, or not coincidence, but reference to um, Kylo Ren and getting his scar. I could not stop thinking about that once we saw the general's injury. So similar. Yeah, and just to to counter slightly with... uh, The only reason I would would say I saw a connection with Obi-Wan and Vader isn't because the characters felt in any way analogous. It's just more... The major duel in the film, of course, was Obi-Wan and Vader in that first film. And is the general and uh, oh, yeah. Toda Koro. Yeah. And then, yeah, the the fact that they were friends and enemies at the same time and having that kind of history together. Uh, that That's more where I drew the analogies, not necessarily in terms of what they... Because I don't really see too much DNA of Obi-Wan in terms of the role he plays here, or Vader, really. Um, See, it's funny... Because, again, some of it is from the original trilogy, and then some of it is when you think about uh, what what he did previously in Clone in the Clone Wars era. But even if we don't count the Clone Wars era stuff, it's he still. It's just it gets kind of divided um, in like a New Hope, because he still is like the elder protector, mentor of the younger person. And he's trying to, you know, oh no, he's not actually. Um, I was going to say he's trying to save the princess, but that happens like incidentally uh, because he's off on another mission on the Death Star. But he still plays the role of that protector. It's just, you can see how it's been edited down and changed um, in A New Hope. And, And supposedly like original versions of A New Hope, the script, were a lot more similar to a hidden fortress and these primary characters, it just got, you know, changed and diluted um, in, in, in more iterations of the new hope script. But Hmm. I don't see much difference. Like I, like they make perfect sense to me as analogs. The only big difference is that he's obviously more a general warrior type character in hidden fortress. um, than the, the, final version of obi-wan and a new hope yeah i think i think the big difference is the kind of spiritual element that's so pervasive in star wars i don't feel like and i do actually feel as pervasive in other kurosawa films but i don't feel like there's much spiritual component at all to the general character or the relationship with well uh, it actually happens in reverse in a hidden fortress mm. because in the hidden fortress princess yuki is the spiritual one and for the first half of the movie, um, General Rokurota is a straightforward, by the book, doesn't believe the, in the Force in any possible way, definitely doesn't show that he does in any possible way for the first half. But there's a, a start of a turn about midway um, where Rokurota, Rota, who has always done things by orders, strictly the way you do it by the book, he starts to turn about midway and starts experimenting with being like spontaneous and in the moment. And you can see when it happens because the princess sees it and you recognize it on her face and he undergoes a conversion because he is inspired by her. Um, And it all starts, well, no, no, it starts before, 
but it starts becoming really obvious by the fire festival. Um, and she not only kind of converts uh, Rokurota, she converts Tadakoro as well um, by mm. the end. So she actually fills that spiritual teaching role in this movie. Yeah, and Isaac, I'm curious what your what are your thoughts about these stars connections with all these different characters. Um, yeah, I think I wonder if Filoni was <laughs> looking at what Lucas was talking about with Hidden Fortress being an influence on uh, 77. So I wonder if when he was doing CG Wars, I wonder if uh, when writing the character of Obi Wan, though he's obviously called the negotiator in that series, I do wonder if. Yeah, he did, like Eric said, kind of draw upon this general as being uh, the inspiration for that uh, characterization of Obi-Wan in that show. I would not be surprised in the slightest. That's potentially possible. Uh, yeah, no, other than uh, the peasants bickering at each other and, you know, being an old married couple, uh, the other general, the rival general... Uh, it's a, it's a lot more friendly the, between these two. They have a lot of uh, a lot of respect for one another, uh, which I, I really much do enjoy. And they're both they were both comrades. I remember uh, the general. He tells him when they're captive towards the end before the song. Princess sings the song. He's like, even though we are on different sides, I'm paraphrasing. Even though we're on different side, we're still friends. I'm like, interesting. That's that's very interesting. Like like Eric said, it's the uh, I guess Anakin Obi Wan or just Anakin's arc from the original trilogy, but just stretched like I said three films, uh, or I guess yeah whatever you know Kylo Ren did there. So that that, that part is interesting. I'll, I'll give Eric that. I didn't think of that, but I, I did at least like how different that was. But again, as its own as its own thing, I, I definitely enjoy it. Um, but yeah, you know, yeah, Princess Yuki herself is nothing like Princess Leia. I think she's. Uh, a lot more of an active presence in this. Uh, and again, she uses her, uh, not that Princess Leia doesn't use this a lot, but she uses her mind. Uh, even though she's physically um, incapable, not incapable, but just she's not as strong uh, and or as a fighter as everybody else is in this film, uh, she at least still uses her mind. That's 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 definitely one thing I like about her. And she's, there's an assuredness to her. I, I really like that. But I'm getting ahead of myself and going I'm a little off track of what he said. Uh, no, I don't really see anything. I guess the big thing itself is that... The Hidden Fortress was uh, the biggest adaptation change. The Hidden Fortress uh, was on the side of evil uh, in 1977, and it was a moving fortress. Uh, the, uh, the the eponymous for- Hidden Fortress in this film uh, is only uh, <laughs> spent in like we spend in like I don't know like one third of the film, and not even that. It's like uh, maybe like. 1.5% of the film or whatnot of the film, or out of three, excuse me, uh, I, I the Hidden Fortress thing gets burnt down. So I, I do wonder what this was called. I didn't look this up, uh, so pardon me if it's obvious, but I don't know what this was called in Japan, like what the actual translation is uh, of, of, of the title. Because if it was just called the Hidden Fortress over here in North America, I... I'm kind of, I kind of feel a little bit, uh, bit, 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 well, not, not, not I, got, I got it for you. But okay, what is it? The Japanese literal translation is the three villains of the hidden fortress. The three, the three villains. villains. That's okay. Oh, that's Put a pin in that for now. Uh, maybe we'll debate mm-hmm. that shortly. But let's like finish off, you know, what we're talking about with with the Star Wars comparison. Because yeah, I got some more general, uh, of 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 the Star Wars comparisons. Yeah. By all means, please take the take the mic. Um, some I just thought of in the moment. Some I already had chambered, but of course, um, the princess loses her land or her kingdom, kind of like losing Alderaan. 
Mm-hmm. Um, the older general, uh, the one who has the very recognizable face for Akira Kurosawa movies. Um, oh, yes. Uh, Takashi Shimura. Yes. that Who's in the Hidden Fortress or like in the mountain or something. Yeah. Um, he's definitely very much like a Yoda character. Um, uh, d- uh. No, not, not, I don't mean like he's the character of Yoda. I mean, he plays, he fills the same role. I don't. I'm not saying characteristics of Yoda. Uh, seems like a stretch, but but go ahead. How is that a stretch, though? Hey, what when you see like a Yoda? I I don't see it at all. Because because obviously Yoda is the elder Jedi. Obviously this guy represents the old wise guard. I mean that's the same role. Again, I'm not saying the characteristics overlap. I'm saying like the role that they play. Uh, it just feels a bit like reaching to find connections, but but go ahead. The way um, she loses uh, her elders, the princess. Uh, we don't see it on screen except from a distance, but that's like uh, Luke losing his uncle and aunt um, and then, you know, being burned to death uh, or whatever happens to them in A New Hope. Um, no, I think those are the ones I had right now in the moment. Yeah, and maybe I, maybe I struggle with that a little bit just because both those tropes are super duper common throughout these kind of samurai films. Oh, and that's fine, though, because... Because certainly Lucas could have been at times drawing specifically from a hidden fortress and then obviously at other times just drawing from the genre in general. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that makes sense. But still, if, if they happen in both and he's already drawing from one, I still think it counts even if it's, even if it's repeated in other, in other films like the trope or whatever. And by the way, Isaac, did you recognize that old man? In the uh, the hidden fortress, yes, I believe it was one of the scientists from uh, Godzilla. Uh, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, and apparently, I think it must have been uh, Kurosawa's biggest collaborator. He shows up in almost all of his films, even that uh, the man, the men who tread on horses from at least ten years before this. He was still a leading man in in Kurosawa films. A good actor, like every. I mean, first of all, everybody in this film, I think, is a good actor, at least to me. Um, but like, that guy, yeah. yeah, he's such a presence and delivers his lines uh, with recognizability and memorability, excuse me, um, as even if it is like the caricatures, like or the cliched wise mold man, it's like, I don't care. Like I, he fulfills his role in duty <laughs> and I like him. Yeah. And he's the lead in uh, Seven Samurai. And he that's that's one of his career standouts. He's just so good in that movie. But oh, oh I got I, I got some others. I forgot. Um, just like, especially a lot, a large part of the landscape in general that looks Tatooine like, um, like, cause that's fair. Cause it was just on the screen, this one scene where, um, the two, uh, peasants look over like a, a rock face or cliff, um, when they look down to the hidden fortress for the first time. And it just reminded me of Luke looking over, um, as he was like trying to scan the sand people, um, with his monocular, mm-hmm. um, so it just looked super similar. And then, of course, just seeing like the random troops, uh, uh, clan troops running around, very um, uh, stormtrooper-like, just trying to dodge them. And I, I know that's a very broad trope that's not just Star Wars or Samurai, yeah. but just trying to dro- dodge them, like dodge the troops and the checkpoints uh, in Mos Eisley. Yeah. And, and you may say these are stretching, but when there's so much, because I feel like these are atmospheric type references, but when you have such a culmination of them, and again, I know it applies to the genre, samurai genre. Yeah. It, it's still it's still a through line, even if it isn't like a 
direct copy and paste. Oh, and something I wanted to say about the wipes. Uh, you know, I've always loved the wipes. I always thought they were super cool, and I always loved that they brought them back in the more modern eras of Star Trek. But one thing I find funny, because you guys know I watch a lot of first-time reactors, and when it's a Gen Z first-time reactor and they're watching the original trilogy, they practically all of them notice the wipes, especially because they're YouTube editors themselves. So they're highly cognizant of the wipes, and they all think they are incredibly unintentionally funny and very old-fashioned. Like They, they always notice that and laugh and think it's hilarious. Um, which I find weird, but I get it. Yeah, I mean, you really don't see them almost at all anymore. So it's I can understand why they'd be like, wow, really, they're doing that? That's what well, I used to do. I, I know you don't see them, but they're cool. Or I always thought they were cool. I agree. <laughs> and I think Kurosawa it, it does some really, really interesting wipes. Maybe not so much in this film, but some of his other ones that really just uh, kind of jar you for a moment. And when it comes to older movies, um, I was just thinking today, watching The Wipes, that it's much preferable to the standard old movie fade out, fade in. Because, you know, whenever you're watching like an old movie and it fades out between scenes, you know, the camera stock gets all weird and like uh, double processed. So much cleaner cleaner just to do a wipe. Um, Like, I'm surprised that wasn't more of a standard practice in classic film in general. Uh, I think they. I think the reason that it's not more prevalent is it, in some ways, breaks the reality of the movie a smidge. Oh, okay, that's true. That's true. Yeah, it makes you way more cognizant of the editing than maybe other filmmakers might want you to be. <laughs> that's true. I guess in my mind, I'm just thinking of the cleanness, like aesthetic versus. Yeah, you're right as far as story flow. Oh, but maybe moving away from. Oh, actually, I guess there's one more thing I want to mention for the Star Wars connection. Uh, the minute I saw uh, Toshiro uh, Mafune on the screen, Mafune. Um, who plays uh, the general. I assume that he was going to be like a Han Solo type character. Uh, n- not just because of his connection with the gold and the yeah, kind of scheming peasants, but just his personality that he brings to a lot of his roles. I could see a, a mild connection with Harrison Ford. Um, maybe more of a like an Al Pacino type in terms of the breadth of his career, but someone who can play a more mischievous, kind of good-hearted hero. I could see some of that in there, so I was a little bit surprised because I was expecting more. Star Wars connections early on. They didn't pick on that role. Yes, in my messed up memory, I had remembered the general as being much more like a Han Solo character, which obviously is not the way it turned out. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't know if this is true or not. Like it's you know it's urban legend by this point, but there somewhere there was probably a decision that uh, George Lucas wanted to have Toshiro Mifune uh, as Obi Wan Kenobi. Apparently that was oh, the, wow. uh, the idea. Uh, yeah, that's the that's the rumor. That's one of the uh, th- uh, tr- pieces of trivia back in the day, or some somewhere that I read uh, could have happened, and that would have been kind of cool. Also, you could see um, the garb that the general wears was adapted to look like um, and brought in to look like uh, what Obi Wan wears on Tatooine. Yeah, thank you. I was gonna say, mm-hmm. even though it's so obvious, it doesn't mean it shouldn't be brought up how much the costumes resemble Tatooine. Because remember, at the time of New Hope, that wasn't a Jedi costume. That was a Tatooine costume. Again, Luke wears the Jedi uniform at the end of Episode 6. 
Which, by the way, I gotta, I gotta correct myself. Um, Anakin's garb. I don't know if I said this in episode two or three, but the garb that Anakin wears. Uh, even though I love what Sean said, where it, it feels like it's something out of you know uh, a spaghetti western or something like um, what, uh, what, what um, whatever Clint Eastwood's name is in the uh, Fistful of Dollars trilogy, but like uh, Blondie, um, which is true. I just realized that yeah, I guess uh, Anakin's uniform is actually a lot more closer to what Luke wears at the end of uh, Jedi. I just realized that now. Yeah, and of course Ray has a variation. Um... And yeah, and I first realized this is being super obvious because I saw Seven Samurai before I saw this movie ever. And so when I saw Seven Samurai, I was like, oh, there you go. All the Jedi costumes. And I guess overall, there's a there's a princess who uh, the general wants to get her back to her basically homeland. Yeah. And carry all the gold, which is the MacGuffin, I suppose. Uh, so that way, because gold means influence in, this, in these times. So uh, that way they can, you know, reestablish her kingdom or her influence as a political figure uh, which they do in the end which is great so it's <laughs> kind of a you know not as a it's a climactic ending i suppose but not as uh, explosive as the uh, 77 was yes and even though it was small scale i still felt like the ceremony at the end was the small scale version of the ceremony at the end of new hope and even though this is a post trilogy reference you can't skip over uh, the princess double as well, like Amidala's. Like I said, uh, back in episode one, even though, that, again, that was like briefly, and again, yeah, I don't see much of episode one in this. I was thinking that as well. I was like, okay, do I see anything in episode one other than like these two being Jar Jar Binks? Um, which I presume that uh, these, these two peasants are a lot funnier than uh, Binks himself. Yeah. Oh, and in episode one, um, the princess does the same thing as Amidala. Uh, which is go undercover as a peasant. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That is correct. Uh, except they try to pull a bait and switch with us, the audience. Right, right, right. Uh, you know, when we see Boss Nass, but anyway. Yeah, but maybe pulling it back from some of the Star Wars stuff. I feel like we spent quite a bit of time on that. Yeah, no, this is, <laughs> thus ends the Star Wars, obvious, oblivious Star Wars section. Let's analyze the movie uh, from the novice leader's perspective. Go. Yeah, and just, uh, I already mentioned that I think the, and this comes up a lot when I watch Kurosawa's films, especially in comparison to Hollywood films around the same period. But the the way he makes films, that kind of handheld opening at the start, I was like, wow, that for a movie from this time, I think that feels very modern. And then just in terms of the the language throughout the movie, there's so many more uh, harsh words being thrown around than I think that you'd find. So, so I found that surprising. And a little bit of the violence with that, that first... Uh, bandit that we see being killed with a blood all over him i was like oh wow that even for kurosawa what i've seen so far that's a little bit more gory than he usually goes to at this point in his career yeah 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 um that that first uh samurai who gets killed in the in the opening um my gosh he looked like a 80s 90s uh era klingon to me like a hundred percent yes um and i had a lot of these moments watching this movie which is you know, I've always seen elements of Klingons and Romulans, yeah, like in Jap- in Japanese historical type movies or period type movies, and it was just as obvious as anything to me um, watching this now today. Um, but some things I wouldn't have known if not for the commentary, which I really appreciated along the lines of what you were just saying, is that Kurosawa, at least especially in this era, 
um, was definitely a rule breaker when it came to how you're supposed to direct and edit films, mm-hmm. um, especially as it pertained to the the um, the Toho scope or Cinescope or widescreen um, model. Because oh yeah, this was Akira Kurosawa's very first widescreen film. Yeah, and and again, a lot of this stuff I wouldn't have known if it wasn't for the commentary, but. Apparently, in American American Hollywood at the time, because in American Hollywood, like around the early 50s, almost all the major film productions converted to the Cinescope style aspect ratio. And one of the rules, quote unquote, was you should never do quick editing in the widescreen format because, because it'll like confuse the audience visually. Um, but one thing Akira Kurosawa does in this movie is completely abandons that rule. Um, and it just works. Like it, it was just like a rule based on nothing. Like just hmm. kind of like what people thought, I guess as conventional wisdom. And, and another rule he broke is they said you should not do like long focal length lens uh, shots in widescreen as well. Um, mm-hmm. But that's another thing he did heavily in this movie. Yeah. And, one of the things I always like about uh, Asian films, not just Japanese, but uh, Indian and, and Chinese films as well, is just the immense amount of extras that you see in the movies. Like there's there's so many of them, especially during that early uh, kind of slave driving scene. And yeah, the really pulled back shots of that, I thought was some really good uh, photography. Yeah, heavy extras in Asian films. It reminds me of when you see some of those like epics of the silent era in Hollywood. Hmm. And I'm just like, who are all these people running around in the desert right now? <laughs> like, you especially see it in the movie on Babylon. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I'll, I'll say uh, with these two uh, two peasants, if or commoners, whatever they, they are, thieves, I think they do a good job humanizing them early on because these guys are, I mean, they're a couple of scumbags. But seeing them in that little slave drive, how they kind of incidentally fall into it and then incidentally fall out of it. I think just seeing the, the, the toughness of their lives, it, it, it kind of makes sense why they're such little bastards, but... They remind... Because see, the way they're written by the design, I found the actors incredibly annoying frequently uh, <laughs> during the movie. They remind me of, like, some of the hobbits in the Fellowship, but if if they were... If two of them were just the worst, like, most despicable hobbits... Um, <laughs> That's very much they remind me because like that scene, those scenes when they're captured and marching, you know, have me thinking about um, like uh, Frodo and Sam in Return of the King when they're hiding amongst the orcs. I could see it. I could see it. Yeah, and they're yeah. At times they are quite annoying. Other times they're funny. Um, these two actors are again Carissa regulars, and this is quite different positions for both of them. So I kind of like just seeing them in this this spot. It's, it's quite unusual for them. But yeah, no, they're they do become a bit much. Not not quite Jar Jar Binks levels, but Ooh, close. Yeah, at times I was like, ah, I could use less of these guys. <laughs> and because I kept waiting for them to have a more of a character turn, like see the light. And every time you think that's what's happening, like within three minutes, they're like back to being idiots. Yeah, and, and Kurosawa does like to um, paint the. He always likes to have characters that are more complicated. It's like, oh, you would think, oh, these poor peasants, commoners, that they'd be immediately sympathetic. 
and then maybe partway through the movie you discover something that's like oh no they're they're pretty fucked up but in this one it's the constant jump between just being fucked up and you kind of like them because they make you laugh at times but otherwise they're especially when it comes to their relationship with the princess i mean they're a couple of real creeps but in those scenes i feel like maybe in a modern sense don't play nearly as, as uh, yeah okay yeah but i i hate to look at it though in a modern sense but we're looking at it from you know 2020 no i know but i no, but i hate to do that even with older movies um because i i like to judge oh, this is a complicated statement i can't unpack it all right now but i still try to take a movie whatever eric comes from as what it is while at the same time, yes, I do take into consideration, um, you know, cultural mores of the day. But what I meant was, especially when it comes to something, well, it could be modern as well, but especially something that is a period like peace. Like, does it make sense in the universe for who she is and who they are and the situation they're in? It a million percent makes sense in that context, which is why I... I'm not fond of some quote unquote modern interpretation. It's like, Oh, I don't like this. It's creepy. Or this is super, um, uh, Weinsteinian. Um, like, yeah, that may be true, but it just makes sense in the universe. I don't think in the universe you're supposed to be like, Oh, look at them. They're so innocent and fun. I I mean, Oh no, 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 no. I'm not saying look at them as innocent. Have you ever seen uh, Rashomon? No, no. Yes. Yes. I think first I was fully aware of the social mores even then. Yes, yes. I'm not saying look at them as noble or... or... Yeah, that's what that was kind of weird. I didn't know what you were trying to say. No, 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 no. What I'm saying is because people balk when when just simply the inclusion of that type of content is in a movie. Um, like, not that we're supposed to be sympathetic for them, just the fact that, that oh, why do they even have to have those thoughts? That's the modern reaction I'm, re- I'm like, opposed to, which I see a lot with a lot of movies. Well, well there's no one saying that in this podcast, though. So it's, it's not really relevant to bring it up. It's, well, that's what I thought you were bringing it up when you said it. Oh, no. Uh, if, if you hadn't cut me off at the start, I would have uh, shown what I was meaning. Uh, I was saying that the stuff that hasn't aged well is stuff that I think was meant to be funny, but in the terms of, of current standards, uh, does not play as funny. Um, for instance, I was thinking of the scene uh, with the straws, where they're drawing straws. I think that was meant to be more of a, a humorous scene, like uh, like look at these two fucks, these 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 low lifes. Any chance they get, they're they're going to go after, and they're bickering about it. And I, I I think it was meant to play as as a fun scene, but yeah, the humor just doesn't it just does not play funny uh, in twenty twenty three. It yeah, it just feels more skeevy. So that that's what I was meaning by uh, aging badly. I didn't look at it as humorous in that way. If if there was any humor in that scene for me, it was more dark humor in the sense of, yeah, obviously this is who they are, you know, because they always revert to their ridiculous backwards ways, the characters. Yeah, and the funny part comes in when the uh, the woman that they bought shows up with a, and starts throwing fruit at them and then a rock. That's when it's funny when they're just cowering in the corner like the little worms that they are. But I thought with the straw bit, it was supposed to have some some humor as well. Yeah, but and speaking of her for a second, the, I'm just going to call her the handmaiden, even though that's not exactly what she is. Um, I actually, I don't know why, I wasn't sure which way she was gonna, going to go as a character um, after she was rescued. Hmm. Especially when there was the scene where she was picking up supplies or something in the village, and then she heard the people talking about the ransom. 
like I almost thought she was completely gonna turn on her on her rescuers, and I thought her character was gonna go after the reward or or like throw them under the bus. Uh, Isaac, haven't heard from you for a while. What do you think about that? <laughs> yeah, I'll I'll get to uh, I'll dr- I'll address the um, previous scene uh, uh, in a second. But yeah, as for addressing what Eric's saying now, there was never any doubt in my mind she was gonna betray. Uh, her princess there was no because like she freed them uh she was freed by them so i i felt that there was like loyalty till the end uh she needed to Mm -hmm. go back and quickly you know warn them uh of this of this awareness that the the public had that the authorities were onto them so i i really did uh enjoy her breath i wish there was a little bit more of her but for what she served as basically a a uh one of the old peoples basically a former citizen of the nation um I did like that she joined it, even though she had a very like yeah, yeah like very minor role. Uh, it's I guess still there to just be either like an extra hand or to ground some of the other people. I have I have no idea. There's probably been many uh, papers, uh, university papers on her character and what she means to the story <laughs> and how it relates to Japan back in the day as well or modern times. Um, so I didn't yeah no. There's never a doubt in my mind that she uh, was going to betray wow. the princess. Um, and, and as for the, uh, the, the two scumbags or the two peasants or two point of view characters, well, not always point of view. Um, I, I actually like, well, okay. So obviously yeah, my millennial brain is like, this is they're they're like for them being, um, I mean, corn dogs or whatnot, you know, hound chasers and all that stuff of just, you know, wanting to they see the, they, they look at the princess in a leering setting as setting as she sleeps, uh, the camera literally like you know poses like shoots at her like she sleeps so innocently and whatnot. So obviously I'm just like I don't know if I like that, but my, my other brain is like I like the fact that these are two morally ambiguous characters, and throughout the entire film that is the point. Uh, and I don't that may be a turnoff for a lot of people where they're just like you can't do that. Like I we we need to know we need to like know where our characters stand if they're black and white, if they're on the good side or the evil side. I like the fact there's so much gray in this world. Uh and that like, you know, Kurosawa is playing with the idea of uh being at least he somehow he made it he did it right. Uh there's probably been many other like characters like this where it's just like you don't know what side they're gonna be on. Uh and this they're on their own side. They're just trying to survive. Uh and yeah. you know pleasures of the flesh uh of course but like yeah they're they're very you know ambiguous uh aligned their their alignment is ambiguous but i kind of like that they're just out for themselves i if they were gray as characters as because i wouldn't call them ambiguous um in that sense i i if they're gray though they're they're dark 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 gray like i think they're essentially bad almost the whole movie um until it turns out to be perhaps a redemption arc by the end but but i i don't think they have much going for them on the positive good side the only time they do good things is when it aligns with their bad intentions yeah and i think looking at it in the context of like the the caste systems i mean these these people are at the bottom of the rung in terms of their caste they they're like nothing so the fact that they have to scrape by and do whatever it takes to to keep going I mean, you could see why that kind of lifestyle would, would create them like this. That's what makes them a little bit more gray for me. Is that well, you could see that, but there are countless examples of people at the bottom of everything in real life and in fiction, where 
they're not morally bad. Of course, there are ones that are morally bad, but there's plenty of uh, of examples of of those types of characters not being morally bad, um, because even when they do something selfish in in other works, they're they're still not as bad as these guys. Yeah, and that's that's why they play them for comic relief. They're that extreme, taken to so extreme that even the person they call their best friend, uh, give them the right opportunity, and they'll happily just screw them over. Like these guys. They are just the scum of the earth, and that's what's meant to be fun about their dynamics. And yeah, no, yeah, I get that. That's that's what I was mentioning earlier. Occasionally, they go a little bit to the point where it's not fun, and then other times they're just distracting because they're a, a minor Jar Jar Binks of like, okay, I'm just trying to enjoy the scene. I don't need you to mugging in the corner, you know, calling attention to yourselves all the time. You know, save the funny bits for the really funny parts, and not just uh, throwing everything at the wall. Like they occasionally do, only a, only a couple times throughout the movie. So I think that they were distracting, but every now and again it shows up. Oh, and I just want to say the the handmaiden person. I had no faith in her character. Uh, I was highly skeptical until the the stone over her head scene. Prior to that, I, I definitely did not have the faith Isaac had. Yeah, and and Kurosawa occasionally did a few like looks from her where it looked like oh no maybe she's more mysterious but i'm on the isaac side i i just never took it as that that's what they're introducing that character for it wouldn't have seemed to fit for me if, if they made that choice but but i did like that uh her inclusion in there it helped of course in terms of the plot for their uh you know since the the, the uh what was the name of the was it yamana or yamana yes yamana yeah, since they knew how many that there were, having her there helped for the, the plot reasons. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, it was a good thing for the uh, princess early on when she was so adamant that they buy her back since she was one of their citizens. And boy, the, that bar scene, those those fuckers in there, I mean, those are some creepy dudes, too. <laughs> and really shows the uh, the roughness of this world and why people like these two uh, peasants will be shaped the way they are. Like This is just not a world built for people on the lower bottom of the, the pole. They were able to accomplish that without gratuitous violence or graphic images. Uh, we yeah. didn't just all of a sudden see a woman declothed or anything like that or abused. Other than, like, I guess being verbally abused, which is still a thing, of course. Um, but we didn't see any actions performed against her that would violate her being. So it's like implied, of course. Excuse me. I got to be, I got to be yeah. careful. How I say heavily that. implied. Like, heavily implied. But th- there was at least, the, like, Kurosawa has some taste. He would, he would treat that stuff uh, with the utmost care. And, and if he would show it, he would do it in a, um, uh, significantly like you know toned approach yeah and, and just since you're mentioning this I, I was trying not to bring this up but just because i was recently editing some of the kubrick series still um I, there was one i believe it was for uh spartacus me and eric were talking and he had a point that i massively disagreed with i didn't really say much at the time but i think i made a couple comments about foreign cinema but he was talking about how the code you know it was it wasn't necessarily a bad thing because it encouraged people to be more creative and created some art that, oh, if the code wasn't there, it would just be blatant and they would just be saying it, that kind of thing. Uh, but for, for I was thinking about a movie like this, which came out during that same period when so many movies are being crippled by the code, and you see what Kurosawa was able to do. I, I just I didn't want to bring it up, but Isaac saying that kind of inspired me to say. <laughs> well, no, I, I don't I don't see any reason not to bring it up. And I definitely strongly still agree with myself on my past point. I wasn't sure what you were going to say. Um, 
But it's funny, though, you bring that up, though, because listening to the recent conversation, um, even before you brought up Kubrick, um, I was, when you, but when you talked about, or when Isaac was talking about um, how it's implied enough without being explicit, my mind instantly went to um, uh, Lolita, uh, Kubrick's version specifically. So I was already thinking about it um, <laughs> uh, before you even brought it up, Caleb. And, and yeah, and I was going to say too that, yeah, I don't imagine you definitely need to go any further in this particular film because, again, from my understanding from the commentary, this was already considered quite racy as it was um, mm-hmm. because it was considered much more not well, adult, but um, not that term. Um, uh, Mature? mature it's something in that in that range it was already considered um as pushing the boundaries and much more extreme than was normal up to this point in the genre um yeah so it was already like heavily pushing boundaries um and yeah with the violence and the blood which of course doesn't come off the same in black and white but still yeah and I don't know about in particular for this film, but I know with Seven Samurai, Kurosawa got a lot of criticism and people just being frustrated with him not playing with the conventions properly in terms of how things are meant to go. Like the peasants that we see in that, we see tons and tons of victimization for them. And then every now and again, we'd see this side to them that was really dark. And a lot of people hated that because they're like, hey, you know, we're, we want to support the people at the bottom of the pole. We don't want to see them being villains in their own way. And so I was taking some of that knowledge to these two, you know, that these are people that the Japanese audience at that time would be more willing to be like, hey, we want to support the people at the bottom of that wrong caste system. And they're just the complete scumbags of the world here. So I was wondering if that would have been challenging for the audience members. Yeah, probably. And I like that you brought this up because this is something I was thinking about a lot, reflecting on the commentary, because this, because this stuff was new to me, um, which is because the commentary talked about how there's there's a an ongoing theme in Akira Kurosawa movies about a character who is trying to deal with like their differences in what society expects or societal norms Mm -hmm. um, and trying to find their place in that kind of meal meal view. Um, And so thinking about that combined with what I already brought up about how he goes against conventional uh, directorial, um, uh, rules or norms at the time so he's obviously displaying like these maverick like characteristics if you ever want me to get into a work of fiction or like a biography of someone or something like that that type of dynamic always piques my interest so i i'm, I'm all into that i i because yeah, it's just one of those things i feel like i can relate to so 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 much is going against the grain or going against like uh, rigid, rigid rules. Just in general in life, I'm so about subverting or or finding other ways outside of the rules. Yeah, and that's partially why I highlight the code. I mean, this is a film that would not have survived the code. There'd be so many snips all over the place. Well, yeah, yeah, because... And that's, that's the reason why I bring it up is, you know, limiting art and what no. they're allowed to do in places where it wasn't in effect. There's no question the code limits art. There's no question, like, a lot of movies... Um, that came out during the time would have to be, you know, 
edited, modified uh, against the maker's will to fit the code. There's no question about that. Like if someone's trying to make their own authentic vision of something, there's no question that the code hampers that. Uh, when I was when I was saying what I was saying, I feel like it's a separate topic, which is directors or producers trying to subvert the code. That to me is like a unique art in of itself. It's like a separate, it's almost like a separate genre to me because one is people trying to do their authentic thing without being hampered by roles. The other is someone trying to play in the roles, but but find loopholes. And see, that is exciting to me, is finding loopholes in established rules. Okay. See, that's, that's where I kept getting confused in the Spartacus discussion. I was like, is he saying that he just flat out likes the code because it forced filmmakers to no it's, it's like an unintentional benefit of having the code um and and again people would never have tried to do that if the code didn't exist like why would you try to subvert something that doesn't exist so it, it created this sub-genre of intrigue to me to see how directors different directors try to play with those with those boundaries yeah and i'll say just one more thing on that spartacus discussion this is a a stupid point, but the whole time I kept being like, oh, you know, I, I, I'm pissed off that this movie was so ruined by the code. You know, I think it's good for what it is, but the filmmakers all ended up hating it because they felt like it took out everything that made it interesting and new and it made it more traditional. And then at the end, you were like, for our final thoughts, you're kind of like, oh, you know, I'm not really that interested. I think it's kind of a weaker film. It feels too traditional. And I didn't think about it until I was editing it. I was like, oh, maybe he would have liked it too if it had been for the code. So. Yeah, well, see, it's, see, that's two separate things because I like Kubrick subverting the code, but it's more in his other films, not Spartacus. And I, I also agree with my old sentiment on that because it, to me, it's not the code per se that hampers Spartacus. It's the Hollywood model and the Hol Hollywood suit types getting involved. That to me is what hampers Spartacus more than the code per se. Yeah, it was the code. If, if you read uh, Kurt Douglas's book, he goes into extremely extreme detail about that. But, but anyway, that's not this film. I, I apologize for bringing that up. Hmm. No, it's fine. Going off into different tangents. But anyway, let's get back to the film. Uh, I wanted to highlight, uh, prior to me starting the Sakura Kurosawa retrospective, I wasn't too familiar with uh, Toshiro uh, Mafuni. I'd only ever seen The Sword of Doom that he was in, which is a really great film. I'd highly recommend that. Uh, but having seen so many of these films now, I'm I'm shocked I don't hear about this guy more. He seems like he's a major a major actor that yeah, is on like the the level of an Al Pacino or someone like that in his in his day for Al Pacino at least. Like he had so much range, he could do so many crazy chaotic roles and then yeah, just am amazing presence on the screen. He he's really something. Yeah, I don't know that much about his history as an actor or whatever, but even just based upon this one film, he was giving off all of that that this is a major leading man like the equivalent of whoever like famous um american hollywood actor uh, he he everything about him gave that off like this guy is an acting force to be reckoned with yeah there's there's a lot of confidence in this again it's i really wonder how he would have played obi-wan had he played uh had he had he been cast as obi-wan excuse me um for 77 but yeah he's a and and very different obviously than obi-wan excuse me I mean, i'm not trying to go back to those similarities but like no very very confident and he's uh, i i like what eric said about how uh, earlier with like how he's kind of straight to the point or he's like plays by the book and then it's princess who inspires him to think outside the box. I didn't 
that w- I never read that. I mean, that's obviously again, this is my first viewing, so I have no idea. Uh, that was never my view. I just assumed he was also just trying to, like, he was very quick thinking and he had a mind himself, so he had to, like, either think on his feet or at the end of the day, he was trying to get to cross the border and he didn't get across the border by any means necessary because uh, then he would have sacrificed those two, these, these two dummies. But no, he's. Well, Again, I, I really like him. He's a very like moral authority figure that we could trust. Yeah, I, I kind of, I also wasn't quite sure what Eric meant about, yeah, him about her changing it because I thought right from the start with deciding to align with these two was outside of the box thinking because I get the sense that he's a samurai, and he does treat these guys as as you know lower, you know, the servant class still, but he's also at the same time like essentially acting like he's making a deal with them and that they're somewhat equal partners or at least that's what they think yes yeah well i think he was i mean i think he meant that deal uh, uh like um like sincerely no because okay so oh, really hmm. yes i i do but you see at the start of the film um i mean there's no question he's already like a master strategist so he does all he already does have quick wits and you know all that type of thing going on and it's in his original mindset at the beginning of the movie, he's probably going to kill the peasants um, up until the point that until he learns about their plan, which as a statistician, he obviously sees the value in that. And then he also abides by like the code of honor uh, of the world of the time. And so that's why I think that once he decides to make a pact with these guys, I think he will honor it on his end, certainly because of the the rules of honor. Um, But again, even though he takes on their idea, it's because he sees the strategy and wisdom in in it, not necessarily because he's changing his ways, even though it is an example of out of the box thinking, which he wouldn't have come up on his own if not for them because he is so straight Mm -hmm. line. And when the turn, I think the first time we see the turn, um, is because oh, also remember he doesn't give a shit about the peasant girl because he can only see how it can hurt them at that point yeah. in the movie. Um, it's just the princess's will that he you know he decides to go along with it. But the first time you see the turn is obviously um, when I think it's when they cross the border finally to go over the bridge um, and they get stopped and then and then he puts on this whole ruse about. Um, I found some gold. There should be a reward. Give me a reward. And that's when you see the princess's reaction. Um, and then his other major turn that goes against tradition um, was uh, when he had the uh, the duel with the other general, the friend enemy general, the frenemy general. Um, and by all rules of honor, he should end his life um, once he wins the duel. He goes completely against, like, tradition as he normally does when he lets him live and says he'll see him again. Um, that's a major turn for the character as well. That's fair. That part I did wonder what inspired him to do that because, yeah, that did seem like a major honor mistake. He was starting to see, yeah, the possibilities of the world outside of, like, all the traditions and, and rituals. I don't mean religious rituals, but... Yeah, norms, cultural, societal norms. Yes. See that—that's partially why I, I assumed from the start that he was not going to honor with these peasants, because I was like, yeah, there's no dishonor to be found with 
not being honorable to peasants. I mean, they're just, they're not worth being honorable to in that system. So I assume that he was just tricking them to be his kind of workhorses, but which I guess he sort of does. I mean, he does just treat them as well, yeah, yeah. the workers and bullies them, pushes them around. Yeah, but yeah, they, when they deserve it, he doesn't ever do it out of like just malice. Yeah, yeah. No, he's not. Yeah. Oh God, I'm just seeing some of the early scenes with when they discover the princess and yeah, she's bending down very suggestively. I was like, oh dear. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> when the peasants are explaining their plan on the sand, <laughs> now I totally understood the plan. I get it. It makes sense. Uh-huh. But I was so confused by the symbols. I mean, because I know... I know all the clans that they represent, the three clans, like um, the bars, the balls, and the the crescent moon. Mm-hmm. But I was confused at first, but I guess it makes more sense to me now. Um, because for some reason where the movie started, I thought we were in the bars territory. Um, so so when he was showing the crescent and then going to the, you know, to get to the balls, you go through the, the bars mm-hmm. i thought they had misplaced the, the the um the symbols like it didn't make sense to me but i guess now oh no that is or was her kingdom where the movie starts that yeah. was the crescent kingdom that was destroyed um and so they're trying to retreat to like i guess a friendly neighboring kingdom so okay so i i get i mean it resolved itself because i just didn't understand it but was anyone else confused or was i the only one who was confused yeah, I wasn't. Okay. But I did love that scene. <laughs> Neither was I. That was a really well done scene. <laughs> uh, I assume it wasn't done in the same place, but uh, just because I don't even know if it was the same like actor's hands, but maybe it was. I don't know. <laughs> but I love the fact that these two guys, like, it's almost like they can't string the thought out. They can't string their thoughts together without the other one there to help them piece it together. And I like that he was, like, the, the general was just like, wow, these two idiots, they came up with something that sounds reasonable. And he just laughed at them, and it's like, yeah, I'll, I'll go with that. That doesn't sound bad. <laughs> I thought that was fun. I mean, I like it, but at the same time, I was like, how did the general not think of that on his own? Probably because he wouldn't think to want to bring the princess right into enemy territory. Okay, that's fair. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> my my point, Eric, was uh, during his, uh, when the general was confiding with the, the princess before they started their journey, um... And I think he was talking with uh, some of the other uh, members of the clan. Yeah. Uh, in that cave, they were, I think he was saying, like, she was asking, can they can they be trusted? Paraphrasing. Can they be trusted? And it's like, uh, I will use their greed to uh, basically get them to do what they, they want for us. Right. Uh, so it's like, yeah, no, I, I, he, he knows exactly who they are. Yeah. Uh, they're survivors, they're greedy and they, you know, they're, they're workhorses basically because, uh, <laughs> let them be the ones to carry the gold in plain sight. Brilliant. Like just completely. The only, the only thing that kind of either like maybe, maybe it is a real thing. My question is how did they get all the gold inside those, those branches, those sticks? That was my like huge like, quite, but obviously it's you know it's part of the movie. it's a very like minor nitpick. I'm just like yeah, well, yeah. How did like how long did that take? I didn't think about that, but that yeah, that seems incredibly difficult. <laughs> and I I do love the way that he just he knows the two of them so well. There's that scene. It's right before they're gonna cross the border and they discover that the border's been all sealed off, and they're like, "That's it, we're leaving. We're just gonna take as much as we, as we can carry and we're gonna go." And he's just sitting there watching them for a while as they're collecting their branches. And he's like, okay, yeah, you can go. Then I'll have the rest of it all to myself. That sounds great. 
they look over they're just like oh crap even in that sense they're like okay we can't we can't give up on this potential gold for us we, we'd hate to see him get away with it <laughs> yeah no i love anytime that happens in, in movies or narratives where there are lines similar to that like how i can trust this person to be who they're going to be and use that to my utility yeah i just kind of like that in general in anything there's a lot of lines like that like in the godfather saga mm. but what amazes me and this is a little bit not relating to movies directly uh, what amazes me though is how in real life i find that humans in general are very poor at reading other people's motivations um like when people are trying to think what the other person is thinking i find that mm. that average humans are really bad at it and for some reason like they think oh so and so is going to do this and, and i always have to be like why do you think they would do that like what in their character makes you think that they're not going to think about this selfish thing and just do what you say they're going to do I, I don't know. I find I've had those conversations in real life all the time, but uh, that's me. Yeah, I think people spend a lot of time imagining that other people think the same way that they do. Yes, absolutely true. I say it depends on who you ask. I think some people can. Of course it does, but. Uh, I'm good at reading people. Others are obviously not. <laughs> yeah, that's why I say the average person, I think, is extremely bad at it. Um, But uh, I'll get to one of my complaints with the movie that. um. It's not something that usually comes up in Kurosawa movies. I, I feel like he's always great at casting, and I usually come away loving all the performances in the movies that he's uh, casting. Uh, but I feel like the princess, um, she's got a great like facial acting range. Like She can give a lot with just a look. But when it comes to her line deliveries, I feel like a lot of them are kind of shrill, and I feel like a lot of them sound the same. Like She's always yelling at this, this weird pitch that I feel like the audio equipment struggles to keep up with i don't know what it is about that but her line deliveries always sound kind of crackly and high-pitched and bad i don't know if you guys felt some of that i well i want well not exactly the same but i did want to bring up this topic though uh this yeah not directly on the princess but the princess is included in this which is i just noticed the yelling and shouting quite a lot from a lot of characters her included practically almost all the characters yeah um <laughs> now of course i'm no stranger to japanese language media obviously this is, this is not my first rodeo so I, <laughs> I know that but what i was wondering about because it was so prevalent in this movie um i was gonna ask like do you think it's because because i don't know i'm not that studied in like the history of japanese cinema do you think it's because just like in in early earlier talking Hollywood movies, um, you know, a lot of the way they spoke was kind of like rooted in, you know, stage plays of a prior era. So, you know, a lot of dialogue in, in American movies is a lot more stagey, like in the first 20 years or so of talking movies. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was wondering, do you think there's like an aspect of that in Japanese cinema that perhaps like when things were relegated to the stage, it was all about projecting your voice, you know, to the people in the back. And maybe that over time just became an established style of acting. And it like carried over into film and live action. Um, because obviously there's plenty of films um, like after this and not just samurai movies where, and, and it's kind of like an American stereotype to think of Japanese as sounding like very stern shouting 
like even if you think about the um the evil patriarch in karate kid part two um what he's always like um Yagi, and he, oh, he sounds like the guy in uh, in Samurai Jack. I always, I said before to you guys, I always thought it was the same guy doing the voice acting, but it's not in Samurai Jack. Um, and and then of course in anime in general, like that's almost like yeah. a trope as well. So you think that's you think it's that? You think it's something else? Isaac, any ideas? Maybe this is wrong, but I, I do. I don't know if. There's there probably is films out there. There's there's Japanese. Yeah, why not? I, I feel like this film is theatrical, as in like it's it's very like theater based, uh, as if you know uh, Kurosawa was trying to put on a performance uh, on a stage. Uh, so I don't know. Maybe I'm reading. There you go. Maybe I'm reading it wrong. But I see what you're meaning. Meaning and same with you, Caleb. I, I see what you're meaning with like how the princess herself yells and screams a lot. Um. I, I take it as at least my initial thoughts are uh, she's very passionate. She's uh, kind of struggling with how to uh, assess the situation and even, you know, how she's going to be able to get to her, get back to her land. Uh, and there's that moment where, you know, it, it, there's a lot, well, there's that whole thing where she was like, right. Her, her father wanted a, a boy, but instead she got a girl and she thinks differently than him. And some of the elders are like, we've never seen her cry. And then we cut to her, <laughs> you know, having waterfalls for eyes like they were out of a Miyazaki film. Uh, looking at <laughs> her land's um, image in the background as a flag. So I took it as she's trying to uh, appear like she's all in order. But, you know, in, in those private moments to herself, she's, you know, she's breaking down. Well, yeah, to focus more on the princess in particular, I I find her character incredibly amazing, and I act, I find her greater than the sum of her parts as a character, um, which I was not expecting going into the movie, just upon like seeing the entire thing. And it is true, like when she's delivering dialogue, she mostly plays one note. That I mean, mm-hmm. there's, no, there's no question about that. But it works for me. It totally works. And, you know, again, when I was seeing her, I was very much thinking of, like, a very stoic and stern Romulan-like character from Star Trek. Um, so somehow grafting that onto it made it all make even more sense to me. That that, that is just so who she is. And, and with what Isaac was bringing up, um, I don't know that it was necessarily that that she was hiding her her inner soft self um until it broke out at times um i think it was more that because she she definitely shares some characteristics with the general but but yeah in a youthful more nuanced way um and it is incredibly interesting just to think on that dynamic of her being a girl who was raised as a boy I mean, mm-hmm. that's a lot to think about. Like, like I'm weirdly thinking of Mulan now for some reason. Um, but, but I think what was happening was, you know, she had always lived the royal life, um, for better or for worse, and she played her role like excellently as like a masculine princess type. Mm-hmm. But what this whole movie was about, amongst other things, was her opening up to her spiritual side 
Um, and that's one of the great aspects of this movie is the whole undercover boss aspect um, because she yep. really starts to see things on the ground level for the first time and she grows to love and appreciate her kingdom and people and nature even more so because because even though I said she converts the general, which she does, she is converted herself just before he is. And and I think that's why she starts having all those like emotional episodes. And I love because we don't ever see her smile until the scene again with the general deception. Um, and then I love the way she looks. I mean, expression wise during the fire dance, like she looks like yeah. she's having the greatest time in the world participating in the dance. And I very much noticed it. And I didn't think they were going to call back to that until they did near the end i just thought it was just oh she's just it's just showing her having fun i didn't realize how important it was going to be the, to the character development and i i just i find her incredibly amazing as a character yeah i also love that fire festival scene and thinking about the the kind of class dynamic there that was probably the first time that she's seen people who aren't maybe in fear of her or people who like these two uh, peasants that they're traveling with, just scumbags looking to, you know, only looking out for their own interest. It's all these people together kind of celebrating their culture. Yeah, I, I thought that was a, a really beautiful scene there. And I've been meaning to point this out too. I mentioned that earlier film, The Men Who Tread on the, the Lion's Tail, or maybe it's The Tiger's Tail, actually, I think it is. Um, they The stand-in for her in that movie, this this prince... They always refer to him, or at least a couple times in the movie, they refer to him as a woman. He, he has this kind of uh, beautific look to him. He, he looks very uh, clean and very kind of feminine in his features. So I thought it was interesting that here we have this this woman who was raised as a kind of a prince in her way. I wonder if Kurosawa was kind of playing with those two dynamics in these two movies. Oh, I, I mean, I, I'm not, I've not seen the movie you speak of. It was mentioned in the commentary, certainly. Um, I, I would think a million percent. That's just that's just like a hunch, good gut feeling on my part. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I just saw a major Star Wars reference on the screen that wasn't mentioned. Oh, sure. But it's it's from the sequel trilogy. Um, the damn logo on the back of General Darth Vader's back is almost identical to the New Order logo. Like, it, like I don't think that it could be any more the same. Oh, interesting. I'll go look at that. And that guy, by the way, is uh, he was Kurosawa's first leading man. I forget the name of the actor. Um, but he shows up all over the place. I always really liked that guy. So I was happy to once again see him here. And even though he doesn't have much screen time, I, I do really like that character and his little redemption at the end. Uh, I was so pleased by that. I was so pleased by that for some reason. I was like, oh, this is so great. And I even wrote, and this is stupid in my notes, uh, for his line when he says, forgive this traitor just as he's leaving. I wrote, hey, I love it. Totokoro joins the Caravan of Courage. <laughs> oh, wow. I don't know why I wrote that. Oh, wow. No, I loved him because he came off as very two-dimensional at, at first. Kind of like how the peasants are two-dimensional. Like, what you see is what you get. Uh, and then and then when the other general said, you know, we'll meet again, my mind just assumed they were going to meet in an in a actual duel to the death at a later time. I didn't really see the turn coming until it was 
you know more obvious uh, what was going to happen so i didn't expect that character turn loved it fantastic i like i did not think that character was going to have nuance yeah no i i definitely really liked really liked that turn um but isaac it's uh it's been a while since we heard from you again uh any thoughts there on totokoro or or the princess like we were just talking about um i do wonder if because I, I may have said this before again but like maybe because of her her gender role she's also got some inner turmoil or inner struggles where you know she was raised this one way but she her real nature like nature versus nurture there's a lot like going in there like how they use reverse psychology as well to get her to uh become mute uh, or do that <laughs> i like that but there's no scheme like she's not over scheming or she's not trying to scheme against her general or anything like that but she goes along with it uh just because it does help better the mission i do i I was trying one, one thing I was trying to do was during the the ceremony during the fire ceremony I was wondering how I'd have to look at this people have already extrapolated on this and wrote written university papers on this so it doesn't matter but I was wondering how the lyrics the the, the song itself that the uh, people are chanting during the fire ceremony I was wondering how they pertain to uh, the princess herself. And at least in this first viewing, I, I could not connect those together, but obviously somebody who's watched this film many, many times and has probably written a paper on this subject could answer my question. Well, what's funny about it to me is that not to mention star Wars again, and it is the best bit of a stretch metaphor, but I think it's a, it's a, it's not just a leap of a metaphor. I think it, it is by design. In other words, not just coincidental, um, because you know it's explained in the commentary that the lyrics um, during the song are based upon like Buddhist ideals mm-hmm. and, and like Buddhist, you know, and and I think the Buddhism and the spiritualism in the movie is the analog for the Force in this movie, not magical powers per se, but a different insight into the universe around you or what makes up the universe. And looking at it through a Star Wars prism, um, I think that is her awakening to the all-living force around her. And and that's what's happening when she's reciting those words. But she's not just reciting them, especially later in the movie. Um, She's actually internalizing them. And she's actually opening other people's, like, non-force believers, like the two generals. Um, She's kind of, like, opening their eyes to it as well. (laughs) In a way, Caleb, maybe this isn't the same, but I, I got I got some Nausicaa vibes from from her almost. Um, the way she had that like that stick that was like a crop or whatever, and Nausicaa kind of has yeah. that in the beginning of of the film, and the way she's able to like you know, I'm not gonna say turn men against her, but almost uh, have an influence on people, and you know the the compassion she has and uh, innocence to her kind of sways people uh for for how just honest and good-hearted she is so i kind of got some vibes from nausicaa obviously miyazaki has his influences for how he made that character but that was that was who i was thinking more of oh interesting and and i had two more thoughts about the character and just listening to recent conversation oh actually one i already had before which was you know the the criterion cover for this movie which obviously has her like holding the stick and everything looking a little crazed I have long thought that, like, I didn't, I didn't like that cover art. Like, it almost looked unintentionally no. comical to me, like over the top and kind of ridiculous. Yeah. 
And I've thought that for many years. But after I finished watching the movie today, I think it's incredible. I don't necessarily like the art. It's the art style itself for the Criterion cover. But now I want a poster of that image. Not not the Criterion drawn one, but like a, like a photographic poster or something of her in that pose. Because I think she's so much cooler now. I think the image is so much cooler. Um, and the newer thought I just had a little while ago was... I was thinking, you know, in other, like, let's say, kung fu type period Chinese movies I've seen and some other Japanese period movies, um, and probably in modern ones too, not just period ones, oftentimes whenever there's a strong female, she just is what she is. Like, if she's just a badass. Like, she's just a masterful yeah. fighter or whatever. Almost, I hate to use this term but just to paint the picture for other people, like what they call like a Mary Sue or like the Ray character in star Wars. Like they just come out of the box, like ready to go. Um, but I think this is all, another reason why I am now so in love with this character is because she's so much, even though she plays flat. Um, but when you boil down her character, she is so much more nuanced and incredibly more interesting than those stereotypical female heroines in the Asian cinema I've seen. Yeah, no, that's that's certainly fair. And Kurosawa, I'll say up, up to this point, has had a, a streak of really strong female characters, um, especially in something like The Idiot, which I watched recently. Uh, the women characters in that are, yeah, they're, they they push so much of the story, even though it's they're not the, the main focus. It's mainly focused on these two men. But the women have such a huge impact. Uh, yeah, it's another another movie that I would very much highlight to check out from his work, The Idiot. Now, this is a side commentary, but it's a conversation I have at times with, with random people or other people, which is um, when it, not, I'm not trying to get political here. There's a point, but you know when t- people and talk about whether in modern times or historically about the patriarchy and how could women ever have a chance because they were so subjective in their subjected in their roles etc which i understand historically or present times but whenever i try to bring up like yes i i get females don't have usually the physical strength to combat like tyrannical men or whatever um but i always try to bring up they have other abilities they have other other powerful ways of persuasion and and affecting other people to their will if they choose and i tend to get shot uh shouted down or dismissed whenever i bring up that type of argument but at the very least would you guys i mean isn't it self-apparent um in history or in in film that it's obvious just like this character she obviously has incredible strengths of influence and otherwise that have nothing to do with physicality and what's even more interesting in her case while she is strikingly beautiful that's not her go-to tool either uh, on how she um is able to influence others well i think she has the uh the luck of her genetics to be born in that kind of uh, royal position preparing her differently oh okay i'll give her that i'll give her that unlike the the peasant girl that they buy who was just a victim of the war and you know sold off to be a sex slave really 
No, there's no question about that. But what I'm saying is, um, even though she does have her class that she's born into, just because she has her class, like say it was a different princess, that doesn't mean a princess could bend the will of generals or even not bend the will, but sway them or direct them. Mm-hmm. And I'm just saying, because I always try to bring up that that femininity and women bring other strengths to the table. And I obviously often get just dismissed and, and uh, shouted down. And I hate that. Yeah, I, I think when it comes to uh, the majority impact, I feel like those are more the outliers, which is maybe one of the reasons that people don't highlight them as much. But I mean, she uses her intelligence. That's the one yes. Thing I, I don't know if I'd say it's femininity at this point. I will say, right, like, right. On 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 paper, she's. I don't really see any femininity in her uh, when she's ex- when she's being, I guess, active uh, and contributing to the plot. I don't want to obviously say that, but like, she's using her intelligence, so that's not exactly a fem like it's that's that's right. you know totally feminine trait yeah it's yeah it's it's like just neutral for it's for any like gender so yes makes her a strong character i think highlighting the in recognizing the plight of that that peasant girl and wanting to free her that might not have been the same in- instinct if it was a prince that that part of it might have been a little bit affected good point yeah depending on the character but yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I get what you're saying you get what you're saying because um, well, well, yeah, we do see royal figures, male or female, that that sometimes generally do care for all of their um, not followers. What do you call it? Uh, their people, their people, their whatever compatriots. No, oh, oh yeah. Uh, um, it's countrymen. Like, no. no, it's not underling. No. It's um, subject. subject. Subjects. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So sometimes, yeah, it depends on on the if like it happens to be a prince or a king. It depends on the character because. Because some yeah. are very benevolent to their subjects, and, and others obviously could care less. Um, but but the fact that she is a striking beauty beauty to the eyes, and she is a young princess. Remember, I think her character is stated to be sixteen years old. Yep. Um, that even plays even more to her intelligence, uh, and and also aids it to in a sense that that people won't see it coming. Yeah. From someone so fair and so young. Yeah, and her kind of impetuous nature. It also makes it more justified. But yeah, she hasn't fully grown into the the more regal element of royalty. She's still got that rebellious youth. Oh yeah, and another aspect because it was stated earlier, like um, we were talking about how how um, Kurosawa was pushing like accepted norms for like violence, et cetera, and being edgy. And yeah, something that was brought up in the commentary that was that one of the many things. People, uh, especially Japanese audiences, um, did not care for in this movie. Uh, was and oh, and, and this, from what I understand, this movie played very poorly and was not well received at all by the Japanese culture or public or critics. It wasn't until it achieved notoriety amongst Westerners and Americans that Japanese begin to excuse and accept this film. But um, and one of the reasons was because. So this story, I guess, is very based upon um, uh, no no theater, uh, like mm-hmm. the, with the costumes and everything. And well, in in the theater, it's it's singing and dancing involved as well. No face. And so part of the reason why the Japanese public did not care for this movie or Kurosawa's vision was because I guess in no theater, the rules are very strict about how the archetypes are supposed to act in certain situations, how they're supposed to dress, how they're supposed to present themselves. 
And I guess Akira break, Kurosawa breaks a lot of those rules in this movie. And, and one of, you know, one with the general, the good general, um, with breaking in tradition in the movie, that was considered a no-no. Um, but also for a heroine princess um, uh, aristocratic character, you would never show so much skin. So it was quite scandalous. No one had ever seen this type of character in a Japanese um, movie that showed so much skin. Like they should be more covered. So that, yeah, that was another big deal. Yeah, that does actually raise the point of, you know, when we first see her, we kind of like see her from behind uh, just because, you know, just like to her back. And then we see like, you know, the striking legs and why they, you know, the two peasants leer on her, on her legs and her figure. So it's like, okay, this, this is good. This makes sense. There's, there's context. And I figured there was context to a lot of this stuff. Like, yeah, he was, uh, Kurosawa was being a rule breaker, even in his own country, which, Hey, I mean, played out for him in the long run. It's now, you know, well regarded as one of the greatest films ever. Yeah. And he, he did this all over the place and he, I could feel him even at times, even though I don't fully know the, the social context, occasionally I could feel him like he was intentionally antagonizing his critics and what the social norms were. And any, anything I've read about him, he sounds like he was very much a Kubrick type as well, where he just could not care what those folks thought about him. He had his dedicated crew that all loved him and respected him. But producers, critics, it sounded like he just had a fuck you mentality. And even a couple of years before this, he did this movie called Scandal. And it was just ridiculing and villainizing the press and paparazzi. And I was like, damn, this feels like it's super harsh the way it <laughs> betrays them in it. It's an opinion piece. Yeah. I can only imagine like all those types of feelings would just be so much more amplified in Japanese culture, especially in the time period in which they came out. Yeah, probably. And you're kind of, it's not freedom of speech necessarily, but you definitely can do stuff on screen that you wouldn't be able to do in maybe something else. And so art is allowed to uh, not, maybe not be limitless, but definitely like you can express yourself more uh, in, in a, in a, in a movie. Right, I'm reminded of like Animal Farm or something like that. Exactly. Um, so, the commentator, as far as the filmmaking was concerned, like direct direction, editing, cinematography, the mm. commentator loved every aspect of this film a million percent, except for one thing. Um, the one thing they did not appreciate visually was the scene when they're on the hilltop and it's day for night and the the soldiers are approaching and they start shooting um, their muskets at them. And especially this one scene when they're running and ducking alongside a log. Oh, the awkward cuts. Yes. The, yeah. the commentator really didn't like that because he was explaining how it was shot was they would roll camera on them running and ducking. Yeah. Cut. They would shoot real... <laughs> bullets or i don't know if they're I, don't, I doubt they're shooting muskets i mean for the filming yeah <laughs> they're shooting real projectiles then bringing the actors back in cutting the next section of them running ducking repeat 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 and he was just like why did they have to use real firearms couldn't they have just used squibs and you know just shot without all the cuts that was that was the one major criticism and I, I agree with the criticism, and that goes to Kurosawa's somewhat perfectionist insanity, to the point of actually ruinous in that moment, because the, the cuts are so obvious. 
But yeah, he would do that. Everything had to be precise, and everything had to be realistic in his point of view. I can't remember what movie... I, I read this little tidbit. I, I, I can't remember what movie it was. But it was one of these samurai ones, and it was taking place in some sort of doctor's uh, kind of a little medical hut. And we have this, this medical cabinet that's never opened. We never see what's inside of it. But he was harassing all the, the set designers that they had to make sure it was period accurate medicine in the medicine cabinet. Even though it's never filmed, he was he just fixated on it and harassed them until they, they did it right for him. So so he's one of those types of personality filmmakers. And yeah, it, t it totally breaks the illusion here because the, the edits are just so poorly done. And in that kind of environment too, with the, the grass constantly moving with the wind, you could never make it match up. It's, yeah, just, I think that's a mistake too. Uh, one, I guess, obvious point, like fact, rule of three, uh, the two peasants dig out stuff three times. Uh, they're, they're digging three times throughout the film. First is in the grave. Well, at least one of them is. Uh, I guess the other is probably doing the same thing, but they're, they're digging, uh, what is it, for gold in that castle. Yeah, and they're slaves. In the beginning when they're enslaved or mistaken for slaves. Um, well, what's the difference? Uh, then the, <laughs> when they get to the hidden fortress, which is, again, considerably smaller than I thought, I was like, when I think of a fortress, I think of, well, again, we kind of, I, I guess, like, you know, use these terms loosely and whatnot, and you can, like, change them for each one. Um, like, they're palette swap almost. Like, when I think of a fortress, I also think of, like, a castle. So I'm like, I thought the fortress was going to be bigger and more imposing and it's just like a few buildings and a secret underground bunker <laughs> <laughs> yeah no the yeah the title makes you think it's gonna be something more exciting and in particular eric's kind of saying this was a direct comparison i was expecting i was gonna say, i was gonna say something about that or two things about that all right hang on a second let me just finish my point and then the third sure. time the, the the rule of three uh they they what is it they they dig out the gold from the fire after they they pitch the entire cart full of wood gold uh into mm. the fire during the, f the festival and they even though the other characters are also like you know digging up the uh gold remains uh i'm still counting that as like the third time they're they're digging up stuff so eric you may proceed unless you have anything to comment about my stuff yeah two thoughts on yeah the fortress um this is part of the reason why i think i have my my memory streams crossed with some other samurai film was because I remember, or the way I remembered it, was that the princess was captured and was being held by the enemy, and they were in this fortress that was more in the traditional sense. Um, it might have been made out of wood. And then, like, the hero-like character, like the general, had to, like, rescue her from this hidden enemy fortress. I can see it in my mind. It's obviously not this movie, so that's why I think I, I must be, yeah, mixing in another movie into this. Um, but then also, yeah, just thinking of fortresses that are not fortresses in the traditional sense. It, like the Alamo, um, which is not too far from where I am. Um, you know, people generally know the story um, through Hollywood or whatever. But at the end of the day, the Alamo was just a small mission, which is essentially a small church. And that's all it really is. I mean, obviously, I mean, you can see it today. You know, it, it's just a small stone church. But just I don't know. I was just thinking of fortresses that are that are thought of as fortresses, but are are not like more in the metaphorical sense. That's that's fair. I mean, what but Caleb minded this one, but like Caleb, when I think of a fort, I think of well, Fort Langley. 
<laughs> oh, that's interesting. Uh, yeah. Oh, but since we brought up Star Wars again, as you guys were talking, I started to remember another parallel to Star Wars that I forgot to mention early on. And that is at the end with the the giving the gold scene slash the metal scene from A New Hope. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was... And I was even thinking, I was like, ah, these, these couple of uh, schmucks, I don't know if they deserve that gold. They were coming on to you, really pushing the, the limit of... Yeah, trying to assault her, basically. <laughs> I was like, I don't know if they've earned that that gold. Yeah, I, I brought that up uh, during my comparisons. Oh, okay, maybe I didn't hear that part. No, it's okay. But I, I also wanted to, to call the... Maybe maybe you address this, too. That with the... I forget what they call it, that thing that they would do with the women would... They would shave off their eyebrows or pluck them, and then they would paint eyebrows further up their head mm-hmm, mm-hmm. some of that was making me think of yeah phantom menace princess Nomadala. oh without a doubt and i always find that creepy i never like that look that puts me off <laughs> yeah 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 i don't really like it in anime or like in stage like stuff uh, that i see but but i guess there's yeah. a lot of weird visual things like that if you look through uh japanese and chinese history um like different um aesthetic choices like body modification almost to say yeah and i i think it had something to do with like women had to have very strict like uh shape of their hair and so because they couldn't accentuate their hair in in stylistic ways they would just do weird face modification stuff i think that's where that comes from i yeah and and let's not forget that the men had all their different types of uh modifications that (laughs) they would do as well i mean yes (laughs) <laughs> definitely both ways yeah and i guess they had their strict hair things too and samurais especially but, but yeah I, I see tons of amadama amadama amadala references um between this princess and because she's more like this princess than than princess leia is that's fair yeah yeah no I, I can i can see that and even with her guards looking like samurai like her captain oh yeah uh, yeah maybe maybe you don't think with their helmets and armor okay loosely loosely, yeah, loosely. like very yeah. like loosely loosely adapted like they went another direction which is totally fine which is good because that way they don't like they're not plagiarizing well they're not yeah they're not actual samurais or anything but the royal guard like in garb and helmet yeah maybe i'm putting that out of my mind maybe i can't remember it too well <laughs> i'm trying to block it out <laughs> Uh, but uh, do we do we have anywhere else to go? I, I I feel like there's one or two other bits I want to mention, but I have to go through my notes here. I have several bits in case uh, you, you, we we still sure. need to fill out time, but obviously that's yeah, me. Uh, take let's it go, away. Let's go back to the what I what I initially was asking of like okay, so you know, it's called the Hidden Fortress, but it's like barely you know a set piece in this entire movie. It's only used briefly in the beginning, and that's it. And then I asked Eric, like, hey, what's the literal translation in Japanese? And you're like, uh, the three villains of the Hidden Fortress. Hmm. Who are those three villains? Uh, well, we certainly know who two of them are. But I guess the general perhaps is considered one, too. Although I'm not sure why he would be. That's interesting. That's what I'm wondering. I'm like, because I was really... Maybe a villain to the, to the um, I don't know the name of the other clan because they are the ones being hunted you know and being sought after and from their perspective but you know i'm starting to think i'm starting to think there's more of a metaphor here in the title or that it has dual purpose 
um, as being literal and metaphorical. Because I've still been thinking on the fact that the hidden fortress in the movie is not what one would think of as a hidden fortress. So I've been noodling on that uh, since that was brought up. And now I'm starting to wonder, is the hidden fortress also a metaphor for an inner part of you or a person that is held sacred that you can endure so much and be abused or battered, but you could have an inner fortress within you that is impenetrable. Cause I'm starting to think that that is an aspect of, especially our hero characters. Um, and then now I'm starting to think about the three villains of the hidden fortress after it was just raised again. And I'll, now I'm picturing that metaphorical inner sanctum you have, like within you, metaphorically, like your soul or being. And I'm starting to think of like if you had three evils or vices that dwelled inside your fortress. Um, I feel like I need to look up a lot more because I don't. I'm not saying I'm right, but I definitely am starting to think there's a dual meaning here. Hmm. Three evils, potential, or three villains, excuse me. Like, yeah, or vices, or, you know, things that hold you back, whether it's, um, 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 greed, beauty. Yeah, greed, vanity. Um, but I was also thinking of, um, prejudice, preconceived notions. Yeah. And I think the duty with, uh, the general, I mean, they mentioned that he, had his own sister die for the princess and yeah in his way the princess sees that side of him as outdated and you know wrong that's part part of her trying to push him to be more i guess modern in that way later in the movie so maybe that has some tie-in <laughs> here's my read the three villains uh let's see id ego and super ego just to peeve off a bunch <laughs> of psychology students <laughs> oh no there you go no no i mean that's that's Germain to so many um, legendary writings or significant writings. Probably not. Um, but yeah, I would not have gone to the whole inner saint, like your inner fortress or anything like that within you. I wouldn't have never like gone to that. But I, yeah. I do see the whole metaphor idea aspect. But I just, at least at this point, I cannot come into a read on, on what that title may be. It refers to something. Maybe, maybe it obviously means something in Japan, especially with the kanji. I wonder if like. Because it's, you know, Kanji's up to, well, it's part Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm thinking the same thing. But on its more, its surface level, I think it's clearly the read is it's the general and and the peasants. I think that's the obvious notion. I just think there's more to it, though, if you dig deeper. Because if the hidden fortress is the princess herself, the three evils that surround her... I don't know why this is the general, but we obviously know the two schmucks. Like, that makes sense. Oh, that could work if the princess is metaphorically the hidden fortress in of herself. And, well, she's, yeah, she's perceived as, like, or she's told to go mute by the general. She doesn't like that. Maybe that's the villain. And again, villain doesn't necessarily mean, uh, like, pure evil. I mean, maybe I'm thinking more of antagonist, but, like, no, like... Those, and those two are greedy, and he's asking her to hide part of herself, but under mm. the guise or under the reason to, you know, move through the land discreetly and uh, deceptively to get to the uh, to get back to their homeland. Yeah, and I, I did mean to mention. Oh, maybe the three villains is just the the three classes here. You know, the the villain is the class system. 
Uh, but that's just a, that off the top. But what I meant to say was, I like the the fact that we have this this ruler class, this, this princess, and she's forced to be mute through most of the movie. I think that there's something interesting about that in itself, dealing with these other two lower groups, just having to be the silent uh, observer. I think that's cool. Absolutely. And, you know, when they first presented, when they were talking about the ruse of making her mute, I thought for sure that was setting up that she wasn't going to be able to do it. I, I, I was expecting her to falter early on and, like, break her silence. Um, I was completely surprised that that did not happen at all. Uh, I was surprised how long she held it up. Um, I, I couldn't remember while I was watching the movie if the peasants had seen her speak beforehand or not, but I guess they hadn't. Um, and and then what's even more incredible, or adding to it, is that while she is mute, she still finds ways to affect her influence <laughs> on situations and other characters while still maintaining the rule of, of being mute. <laughs> You know, like when they try to steal the horses and go across the border on their own. Loved it. Yeah, I love that bit too. <laughs> but I also like that she she couldn't stand up and tell them to not to do all that. She just had to kind of just follow them. And they keep looking and they're like, oh, you know, like, like, go away. And they're doing their little like charades to try to tell her they're just taking the horses to be watered. I thought the comedy there worked. That was such a, yeah, that was such a good bit. Like she, that was a good display of her as well, where she was being, hey, <laughs> Caleb, neutral gin. She was waiting and listening. Oh, there you go. Waiting yeah. and seeing. Exactly. All right. She was. She was definitely. You know, playing it out and letting them uh, act out. That's a funny thing. Like being the quietest person in the room uh, enabled uh, both characters to reveal their true selves. Even though it was kind of obvious from the start, but even yeah. still, it's like uh, by being passive, you all of a sudden reveal uh, a true person. It's like Borat almost. Yeah, and again, I. Yeah, occasionally these guys annoy me, but I, I do think they have some really strong moments. I like that a lot. I And that, that early sequence when we're, you know, we start off on them and then we see them fall into the slavery and their kind of joy of being reunited. I think that's all great. But then even then, they still have these these just constant sniping at one another. And they have that one fight where it escalates so much that the other one almost kills him with his little, uh, his digging tool. It's like, oh man, these, these guys are just a little piece of chaos on their own. Yeah, what, one thing that, uh, maybe another joke that may, maybe not lands as funny, but I, I did enjoy, was the fact that they were the, the general uh, in disguise, obviously, beforehand. Like, when they first got to the Hidden Fortress, uh, he tells them to go up the rock face. And they're going up there, they're struggling, they're bringing, you know, hold the whole mountain <laughs> down or whatnot. And they get up there, they, go, they look down, it's like, what the heck is that? It's the Hidden Fortress. Roll credits. And then they see the general and he goes through this uh into this house and through this uh door or at least a piece of linen or or cloth uh is there like a a cave and then he comes they go go through the cave system and end up down uh where they started to climb the mountain i think that was that was kind of a funny bit maybe not as like you know laugh out loud but i I like the little sequence there where it was the punchline i think was delivered uh well yeah, and you know what that reminded me of? I don't know if you remember this, or if you if you thought of this, I should say. It reminded me of the episode of Avatar that we just covered, the Firebending Masters, where we see Zuko and Aang struggling to crawl, climb up that mountain. And when they get to the top, they just look down, and everyone's just there. 
It's like they all took a secret passage. It was like I the same same thing. <laughs> did not have that on my mind. I was not thinking that because well, here's the thing. Okay, here's here's the difference. Because when they did that sequence, when they did that scene, it wasn't played for comedy. I think it was a little bit more no, subtle there. No. Where and and they did it over the time. This actually had shots that lingered on for a little too long. Like when I first watched it, I was like, I, don't, I think this is going a little long. And then when I watched it again, obviously while while, while we're you know talking. Uh, it went quick for me. I was like, oh, wow, okay. And you just see the comedy in it, whereas with Zuko and Aang ascending the mountain, they're going up there, like, again, they're, they have this this holy light, basically, uh, and they have to get it to the top. So it's almost like a quest. Uh, they have to get up there uh, just to attain enlightenment, almost, in a way, whereas this is just two morons trying to get, get, up, to, get up the side of a mountain because this guy told them to. Yeah, and I was feeling bad for the actors because when they go down that later, they're like rolling all over those rocks. I was like, oh my gosh, oh, that looks man. really painful. I, I know exactly what kind of rocks those are. And I don't just mean like, you know, geologically speaking. I just mean like, I know how those rocks would feel if you like put your leg on them. Instant cuts, like instant, like blood is being spilt like everywhere. Like, dang, dude. Not cool, but... Yeah, props to those actors. I mean, again, pro probably a lot of more lax back in the day. You want to talk about, like, you know, stuff that actors had to do back then. Like, man, like, and not have insurance or any compensations. Man, I tell you what, this was, there'd be a lot of, like, OSHA violations uh, or just whatever violations here. Like, they, they were breaking the rules back then. We're not even talking about that, like, you know, comics, or not comics, but those, those film codes, which is, like, you know, humanitarian rules, like, good grief. Yeah, and Kurosawa is another type of person who would make you do take after take until he felt it was just captured perfectly. So hopefully he didn't make them go down that, that mountain a bunch of times, but <laughs> he's that kind of guy. So I got, I guess, going up, bouncing off that. Do you want to, do you have any other of your notes there, Caleb? Uh, my notes are, uh, they're essentially done. Yeah, if you, if you got more, you can okay, take it away. Okay, because here's another thing when it comes to take after take. Let us refer to the duel because even though we've kind of mentioned it, let's talk about the duel. Uh, Eric, would you like to start off with the, the duel? Okay, just a take on the duel. Yep. Like anything noteworthy? Did you enjoy it? Did you not enjoy it? Did you think it was cut trash? Like was it cut too much, and you know you couldn't see what was happening? Like any basic action was happening? No, 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 no. I, no, I got you. Um, so I thought it was interesting in the commentary that. It was it was noted that Kurosawa had a had a bit of Kempo experience in his youth, so um, so he had some you know more understanding of, of these types of duels beyond the layperson. And again, I don't know much about at this time about the actor who played the good general, but whether I I don't know I want to say he had some type of training too. Um, more so than Kurosawa, but whether it was from his own training or just being in movies, he was exceptionally up to the task of performing what he had to perform. Um, I thought it was going to be a little bit boring, boring and drawn out. While it was drawn out, I did not find it boring though, in execution, um, and I really liked watching it. The uh, you see this in a lot of like Bruce Lee movies. But I think it was done, and, and other movies outside of Bruce Lee. But the way the onlookers made the circle, and the way they would um, 
contract and expand during certain moments and the way the camera was positioned and the way it was framed absolutely excellent perfect like amazing um um uh, what do you call it uh um, background character acting um there was one particular moment of note that the commentary pointed out which was the moment when the good general steps in um steps on the other general's staff breaks it and then and then retreats um like watch it like it's it's one take and it i mean it's all one one shot one take no cutting and it is perfect it is like so on point now maybe it was the 12th take i don't know but the version we see in the film is just it's just absolutely on point um no the duel everything about it was was fantastic to me caleb what are your thoughts on the duel that takes place in this film oh i i really like it and i like the fact that it isn't like a really passionate kind of fight it's just kind of a oh yeah let's have a spar and if i win then i can go about my way i think that lends a more uh lighter air to it and even the end when he's saying goodbye and that big bright smile i was like oh wow this is i was not expecting this this kind of character turn from him i thought he would just even though this was his friend i i figured he would just cut him down so i like the surprise there how about you isaac so my take on this, I don't, I will not, I don't want to get into all the technical stuff. I know some stuff when it comes to HEMA, and I've never done it myself personally, but I'm starting to get like more fascinated into it. But I can take what I know and apply it into that kind of stuff when it comes to arms training and, and stuff like that. Um, I, like I said before, I thought it was a little out of nowhere that he just ends up in this like small encampment. See, this is, this is an encampment. This is not a fortress. Uh, anyway, um, he just happens to, you know, maybe, maybe that's a coincidence of the film. Maybe like that's a whole thing was Eric described as like spiritualism. Like he's, you know, the, the force, he was able to like, you know, find this old compatriot of his. Uh, and then they had this sparring match. So I like what Caleb called it. It's sparring match. It doesn't feel like it's this passionate match. I, first off, when they said duel, uh, cause I knew about like, there was a duel in this, uh, movie. I thought it was going to be with swords uh but it wasn't it was with Hmm. poles and i was or pole arms excuse me spears and i was very surprised by that and i hadn't exactly ever seen a like a major motion picture at least to my knowledge that uses spears uh in this in this style at least and this actually looks very you know like how a real uh spear or or pole arm contest would uh, would go about uh it'd probably get a little Hmm. bit more bloody but i was very impressed with it and uh, in fact, again, like we have both combatants that have uh, a similar like reaching, you know, uh, weapon, so that instantly negates any like reach they have on that. And the whole reason he breaks the the spear at the end, I think this is obvious for everybody, but the reason he breaks uh, the other general's spear is because now he has a longer stick. Uh, no pun intended, or, or you know, no innuendos there. Uh, just that now he literally has a shorter reaching weapon, so he would. Yeah, I mean, it's game over. I guess checkmate. He's exactly yeah uh even though one of his troops could have you know tossed him another spear but no, i no, think no. that would have been dishonorable and yeah would have yeah ruined the spirit of the thing exactly yeah i was gonna say you know you do see a lot of spear and staffs fighting like in kung fu movies a lot i guess you do yeah yeah you well you do and, and even like in uh crouching tiger hidden dragon but the big differences or the way i differentiate them is that comparing this to that would be like comparing the lightsaber dueling in the original trilogy 
versus like Revenge of the Sith. Whereas in Kung Fu movies, it's much more like a choreographed dance uh, between characters. Um, whereas this feels, by comparison, more grounded in reality. Yeah, yeah. This this is definitely more plausible and grounded, which you're absolutely right. And the other one is uh, spe- spectacle. Like all those kung fu movies are designed to make it look beautiful and like instantly recognizable and be like, I want to do that. That's the whole selling point of this stuff. This felt the same way. It felt practical. It felt uh, like they knew what they were doing. Um, and you know, there there could have been more moves to it, but I was just impressed. I was like, holy smokes! Like this is the '60s. And we actually have like a legit uh, arms fight scene that that could be deemed like you know fairly realistic and and plausible. Uh, so I got to give my hat to Kurosawa on that. That is pretty awesome. That I mean, it just he, he he seems like the guy who would you know uh, portray a, a fight scene like this in a more grounded way. Uh, the movie even feels like that as well. I was actually yeah. surprised that even though they had muskets around here, I was still was surprised they didn't have any bows. But maybe that's just because it's a different era. Because uh, I was, I was thinking that they, they could have like stopped these guys with bows and arrows if they still had them, but I guess the same with guns. Anyways, uh, where to? Yeah, where to now? Anybody else? No, no. But I was thinking also thinking about just him getting caught up because you someone mentioned like him not expecting to find that little enemy fort uh, or outpost there. Um, again, it, I feel like it's the, it's the Death Star moment if there is one in the movie. Um, much like. Uh, when Obi-Wan, Han, and Luke unexpectedly come across, across the Death Star and, you know, get tractor beamed in. But also, I am thinking of the scene when Han Solo runs down the corridor and then he gets into the hangar that has all the stormtroopers. Of course, there wasn't that many stormtroopers in the original New Hope, but it, but it's still, even before the special editions, that to me was one of the most comical scenes of A New Hope when I was a kid. And, and so I was kind of just thinking about that with him stumbling across the enemy like that yeah and i think a movie like this they don't have any like huge major action scenes so finding a reason to insert this in there i think it i think it played well and it's a, a really long and kind of standout moment it definitely sat with me the next the next day when i was thinking about it just how cool that scene was and yeah you mentioned that we we occasionally do see this staff fighting in kung fu stuff I don't feel like it's given such a spotlight the same way they do here. Usually it's just like, oh, there's someone sword fighting and then someone has a staff and maybe they'll get a little variant in the fight where they're using both staffs. But yeah, not something that from the outset is just a staff fight. So I think that makes it stand out a little bit more. I mean, another thing that the scene uh, served was a setup for obviously the other general uh, betraying uh, his army and working with the princess and the general. So that was that was that was the setup there, which played played off really well. I was I was not expecting that, but I also I guess that also has to also do with um, it was both parts. It was both um, anger towards the general for dishonoring him, basically, and not committing seppuku or just killing him there in the sparring match, and then of course the princess wooing him over, or at least you know changing his attitude uh, with that song when she's imprisoned. Yeah. Yeah, again, I loved it because I fully expected there to be a second bigger duel to the death. Um, and, and I did mm. not see it going down the way it did, which 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 thrilled me. I've I've, I, I've been watching too many Street Fighter movie, movies. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. And how bleak those can be. 
Yeah, and I think her performance of the song was uh, was quite well done too, and clearly done like right there, which I much prefer. I wish movies would get back to doing that kind of thing instead of. I feel like usually they just uh, pre-record it and just like insert it in or record it after. Oh, the fact. You, was, you think it was recorded in real time? It certainly sounded like it. Yeah, it's it sounded natural. I'll need to go back and look because I just assume, especially with foreign films, especially of older times, I just assume that everything is recorded silent. Um, and, and ADR afterward, but I don't know. I have no idea. I was wondering about that too, whether or not this film was uh, ADR'd instead of just because they're outside. So I don't know how they're gonna have like boom mics and be able being able to pick up the audio. No, I, I think the standard with Japan was to record audio while filming. I, but yeah, plenty of places weren't doing that. And I don't. Yeah, but but I'm pretty sure with Japan they were. Yeah. Um, I, I, I thought about this because I, I made a post uh, about this not within the last 24 hours, but one of the greatest special features, in my opinion, uh, especially of a Tarantino film, is if I don't know how guy, familiar you guys are with the movie Death Proof, but there's the there's the one scene where Mary Elizabeth Winstead sings while she's listening to her iPod, and it's 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 cut off when uh, Kurt Russell comes around and like wet willies her foot. Um, <laughs> But in the special features for the movie, um, that whole idea of her singing in that moment was relatively spur of the moment during filming. Um, and Tarantino was like, do you think you could do this like in camera? Um, and, and she just like practiced for a little bit and was like, yeah, I, th- I think I got this. And in the special features, you can see the full uncut her singing that entire song live in camera. And it is absolutely fantastic. Huh. It is amazing. So, yeah, I just recommend that. That's interesting. Anyway, it's really, really good. Hmm. I wish there was more of it in the actual movie, but whatever. Huh. Uh, but I feel like I've come to the end of my my notes here, so if you guys have anything else before we move to final thoughts. Quite convenient, given that uh, for my viewing uh, of the movie, it just finished in the background. Oh, there you go. I, my <laughs> gosh, mine's finished multiple times, but it's all good. Of course, you see. <laughs> is, is it really, or is it just, did it go through once? Or have you, is this like your second time? Uh, it played through once, and then I put it like halfway, and then it played through again, and and yeah. All right, you just keep re-recording. Okay, so I guess since we've just finished, uh, or we're about to finish, I guess the, the ending for me, um, here's here's one thing where I'm just like, okay, hang on a second. So they get the the princess after like the de- like the daring rescue, uh, literally like almost like a, a Death Star rescue in a way of the of the gen- of the other general coming in the Scar General. Excuse me, I'll make it clear there. Uh, the Scar General got abused by his lord. Good grief. Hmm. Um, yeah, yikes. Uh, that happened. Actually, some of that happened also quickly. I know that a few days had passed, so that that is nice. So maybe that there there is just like some. Um, benefit of the doubt where you just have to um, what 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 is it um, just uh, lower your expectations and suspend your disbelief there we go uh, just to think oh yeah it's been a few days so he probably went back to his lord and reported what happened or somebody did and then the lord punished him by putting a scar on his face um, just at the end when they get the gold back or when the when the princess and gen- two generals get make it to and the, obviously the peasant girl uh, when they make it to uh, their other land, or their their homeland, basically, um, or their home territory. 
events almost happen pretty quickly where the we we see the end of where the peasants are those other soldiers show up it's like hey are you are you here for are you here for, uh, for these guys and they have the gold with the the horses and then they're presented to the princess and i'm like wow everything happened a little so fast like it was Kurosawa was like trying to wrap uh the, the story up pretty quickly and wrap it all up in a nice little neatly tied bow uh, am i wrong on that or am i just like is that my first impression I think it was quick, but I think it was also by design because just me as an audience member watching it, you know, once they escape through the, I don't know what those are called, those Japanese like gateways. Um, Mm -hmm. But once they escape on horseback, as me as an audience member, I feel like, oh, phew, good. We, we did it like, you know, end of climax, you know, we just need to wrap some things up. But again, I was like, "Hmm, are we going to go back to the, the, the original two peasants and so I feel because that moment has already happened and you're already starting to come off the high then it is by design to be expedient from that point on to wrap things up yeah yeah it almost feels like a bookend at that point yeah yeah and I think it works well enough I don't know if we I, I guess we I guess I can understand why they would want to go back to them for the end bit but by that point I was kind of like okay I'm more with the the main cast I don't I don't really care that much about these two. So, well, so we're ending it with them. Thank you for setting me up for what I wanted <laughs> to say uh, sure. more on this part. So this wasn't, you know, this, my idea was spurred upon by the commentary once again. And after they received the, okay, first of all, we see, you know, when they go before the two generals and the princess, when they're seated, um, you know, we, we now see those characters in their true form, so to speak, even if it is like a new form for the converted general. Um, and in one sense, I'm sorry, I could go on days with the uh, oblique Star, Star Wars references, even if they're just feel alikes. Um, but it's it's almost like seeing the Force Ghosts at the end of Return of the Jedi and kind of seeing those characters as them true selves. Um, but... But beyond that, we, we see them now in all their glory. And and so when the peasants leave after receiving their reward, the commentator mentioned how, you know, we started off with these characters. There are point of view characters. And as they descend down the staircase, um, the commentator said the, they are now leaving the world of gods and returning back to their normal lives. And I really like that. That really stuck with me. And then it made me think, now during this commentary that if i think of these characters as being in the world of gods is it so much that or now it makes me think of the whole movie as as you know like in greek mythology when the gods would sometimes disguise themselves as humans and 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 live amongst and get in get into shenanigans amongst humans before they return back to olympus Mm -hmm. or whatever and so i kind of saw this as being like a mythic story um, of these godlike characters assuming like the clothing and and lifestyle of lowly humans before in the end um, returning back to, to their mountaintop. And I just think that's an amazing way to look at this whole story and, and to frame it. Uh, Isaac would have never thought of that. That's I like that read on the film. Uh, I just thought though of like, 
I, just, I, I don't know why I thought of this, but I was like, well, what if what if the title again? Not to go back. <laughs> I to love this, it. I love it. Though, um, <laughs> what if the title, the three villains of the Hidden Fortress? What if that refers to the? Well, I assume anything, but like it's, it refers to the point of view of the two peasants, and then the three people at the end are the villains. Well, yes, and if we want to get poetic about it, I, I can expound upon that because. Another metaphor for the Hidden Fortress is like an, an elusive inner peace or elusive paradise or way of living. So the, if the goal is for these characters, I'm talking about the, 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 the three I was talking about, the, um, the more aristocratic characters... If the goal is for them to return to "quote unquote" normalcy or paradise, where you're you're without fear uh, of living and everything and in, an in opposition, perhaps that's the hidden fortress. Because because I'm almost thinking of it as like a take on the concept of the undiscovered country, except the country is something paradisical, like the Garden of Eden or something. You know, maybe that's the hidden fortress. Is is like that inner place of peace that is difficult to find. Um, and, and again, three villains, maybe it's just a play on words or, or whatever, or just being ironic. Um, Cause it, it could be them as well. The three villains dwelling in, in the hidden fortress at the end, again, the fortress being paradise. Hmm. Yeah, it's all interesting. It's all interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I always think when Caleb has this type of reaction to anything, uh, that it's something I used to say at work because uh, I used to be in a position like a concierge, and you know people would have requests, and I would always say, "Okay, I hear what you're asking for, and I'm just going to write it on this piece of paper, and I'm just going to throw it in the air and walk away." <laughs> it's always I always picture Caleb. Uh, metaphorically writing it on a piece of paper going, hmm, and then just tossing it and walking away. Yeah, this is the too drunk to uh, yeah, string words together. Yep, I figured. <laughs> he's, he's drunk and he wants to end the podcast, so... No, keep going if you have more to say. No, no, no. I want you to engage with us on this, but obviously I don't think there's anything you have to say about that. It's <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, that's a good read. It's an interesting read. Interesting read, is what I'll say. No, no, you don't have to add to it, obviously. Yeah, but but I, other than that, yeah. I, I definitely think the original literal translation is a heck of a lot more interesting Agreed. Than the, than the English version. I agree. And just because I, I don't just do this with Kurosawa or the quote-unquote great filmmakers, but I always think anybody who's really applied themselves to any form of art, you definitely don't just slap on a title and just be like, yeah, that it just says what it is on the tin. You're definitely going to have your own nuanced thoughts about it um, in your head. You know, it just... So it warrants exploration. Whether we're stumbling in the right place or not, it doesn't matter. It, it definitely warrants exploration. Yeah, it becomes trickier because, especially around this time, most of the titling came from the studios. They would just... The filmmakers would make their film, they might have an idea what to call it, but usually the studios were the ones to slap a name on. Way to wreck a point. I know. <laughs> wow. It's like saying, yeah, I mean, I just had this... 
I just had this epiphany in life, and Caleb was like, "Yeah, that I saw it in a fortune cookie." <sighs> yeah, it's it's an unfortunate. Uh, yeah. How faker can you get? Great misfortune. Base my entire uh, life philosophy on something out of a fortune cookie. Wow, when you make it sound like you know studios came up it uh, came up with it you know in an afternoon or something like that by a committee, I really sound stupid for <laughs> pontificating on all this stuff. <laughs> hey, I don't know in this case he may have given the name. I don't have know. you guys seen the Last Dragon? I feel like Leroy Brown. Have y'all seen that? Oh yes, Bruce Leroy, Bruce Leroy. Yeah, for for those unfamiliar, <laughs> that is so coincidental. His character is told by his elder mentor figure to seek out like the chosen one who has like all the wisdom. Uh-huh. And then he yes. lists like the egg fong, uh, uh, cook, fortune cookie factory or whatever, and then he discovers that it's just like a computer and a machine that just prints out these. Yeah. Uh, now I feel like Leroy Brown. Caleb is just destroyed. Yeah, Bruce Lee. Bruce Leroy. Yeah, Bruce Leroy Brown. Um, Caleb just destroyed my whole world. And I always think because occasionally this would happen, and filmmakers would be heartbroken about the name that the studio chose. And I always think of George Romero, George Romero with uh, Season of the Witch, where in almost any interview that you watch, he'll always refer to it as Jack's wife. And he was like, ah, oh, the studio slapped this name on it, Season of the Witch, a cheap name just to sell tickets, but it's, it's Jack's wife. And all the actors would do the same. They'd all, they'd all call it that. And I always thought that was sad for them. <laughs> they just took it away from them. But even if this was a studio-generated title, Mm-hmm. The title is obviously drawing from what is explicit in the movie. Yeah. So it still comes from the DNA of the movie. So even if it's an explicit title made by someone else, we should still be able to extrapolate elements that are still in the movie. So even if we're extrapolating from the the, the Hollywood or studio title, it's still based in the truth of the movie itself. So these themes are still, to some degree, apparent in, in the work itself. Yeah, and of course, once once the film's made, once it's out there, especially a film like this that's so old, yeah, what you interpret from it, I mean, it's that's completely fair, you know. <laughs> Whatever the intent of the filmmaker, it you know it, it changes over the years in terms of the intent, or at least the readings of the audience. The filmmaker's intent doesn't necessarily matter in that regard. Because because title aside, the hidden fortress, quote unquote, could st- it still very well could be the intended metaphor in, in one of these or multiple of these ways. Yep. But, uh, well, do you guys have anywhere else to go before we, uh, start doing the curtain call? Not particularly. I think as of this moment, uh, even though I'll be, uh, definitely watching this again, I guess, yeah, I'll, I'll say I recommend this film, uh, to anybody. Do you think, Caleb, that this is an entry-level film for any person to get into Kurosawa, or is there a better film that is for the beginners? Uh, better film for the beginners. Hmm. Or, like, easier to understand, easier to, like, I guess, digest, and or uh, a good uh, a good starter pack. No, yeah, I think this would be a good starter pack. I don't think it's... I don't think it's his best that I've seen so far. Uh, certainly not, but it certainly features a lot of the, the strong aspects that he does throughout his career and his contemporary and samurai films so the emphasis on the different class structures the the good balance of humor and a lot of his usual performers feature in it as well so you'll get a sense of his cast of actors so man every time you guys say something all these synapses fire in my brain <laughs> um that's good I, i'm 
I'm definitely not that learned on Kurosawa's work. You know, I've maybe seen five or six of his films, and most of them have been quite some time ago. Um, but just from the little I've experienced, I would think this would be a good intro, as well as Seven Samurai. But why this one? Um, aside from like what Caleb said, and despite it not necessarily representing his body of work, I think it can't be discounted. Like um, the connections to Star Wars, because I think that would help on a starter level, because most people would be familiar with Star Wars to some degree going in. So mm-hmm. I, I think that helps with that. Um, and then since something else I was thinking about was I forgot to mention that this reminded me of a random movie I watched um, several months ago on the Criterion Channel, which was Sullivan's Travels from 1941, which was a movie that I had was never aware of before and I, I thoroughly enjoyed. And it's also <laughs> like a comedy um, uh, for the time. Um, and in it, this man is very rich and wealthy, uh, but he's like fed up with his handlers and publicists, etc., lawyers. So he goes off the grid to get away from them. And the movie, even though it came out in 41, it takes place during the Depression era. And so he lives a lifestyle amongst the masses in the United States in the middle of the country. And through the movie, like his eyes are completely opened to how everyday people live. Um, and, and in the beginning of the movie, there was all these arguments because um, uh, I think he was an actor or director, I mean, in the movie. And he wanted to just make serious films, serious, like high-minded artistic films. And his representation was like, no, people don't want that. They just want to be entertained. And he's like, no, I have to like be true to my artistic vision. But when he goes through his travels and travails and all types of things, um, and spoiler if you don't mind for Sullivan's travels, but there's an iconic scene at the end um, be- where I think he gets caught up in a chain gang. And it's like, it's kind of like Cool Hand Luke, where it's like oppressive, like old school, you know, chain gang type situation. But the one bit of respite or or entertainment they'll allow the prisoners to have is there's a, a local small church that'll host like a little movie night and for for the inmates and whatnot and so the guards take them to the little church house and they play a film and it's like a silent mickey mouse cartoon in black and white and like the inmates start to like laugh and some cry and then that's when the character Sullivan has this epiphany that even though the world is so terrible terrible right now and all this human suffering these people find joy like in levity and just entertainment and that's what changes his whole dynamic when he's like yes I am going to give the people what they want because that's what they want I don't know why I'm getting emotional right now because uh, <laughs> that's what they need and that's what gets them through like the hard times and I don't know I love that movie so much and this movie just reminded me of that because of that undercover aspect. Oh my god, I'm all broken up now. Uh, oh, that's I, interesting. I'd pass you tissue if you know you were in the same place. <laughs> well, I guess we are. We're in the bar. Never mind. What am I saying? There, there you go. go. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Powerful. Yeah. No. Glad you're. Uh, 
Thanks for expressing your emotions there. That was uh, that was out of nowhere. Well, involuntary, but yes. Hey, sometimes it just happens. Sometimes yeah, it just happens. Active passion, man. I got nothing against that. That was just spontaneous. It was just, it was just really good. It was. God, that movie like really spoke to me. Yeah, and unlike the princess, you didn't have to climb to uh, a hidden part of the mountain, secluded, to uh, let it let it free. Oh, uh, <laughs> uh, I like that moment. It, it came on my screen uh, like ten minutes ago, and I was like, "Oh yeah, I forgot." Um, oh, don't forget the Jedi mind trick in the movie. Um, oh, right, reverse psychology. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Which I was even wondering, I was like, did that term exist at this time? I don't think it did. I literally was thinking the same thing. I'm like, is this, like, anachronistic at all? Is this period accurate? Of course not. What the heck? Hey, you never know. Yeah, but it's it's, it's something I'm sure out of, like, the, uh, the Art of War or something. I mean, some tactic similar. <laughs> Could be. Yeah, uh, of course. Yeah, and I was thinking that, too, I, I, that's the thing I keep having. I'm just like, okay, so all these explicit words, they are not actually what they say they are. Uh, in Jap- Like, in Japanese, obviously, there's <laughs> Japanese and English are not the same. Oh, yeah. I mean, this and many other things, I would love to see, like, literal translations. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. I, I, I'm i only able to notice it, like, in Spanish-language media. Um, that's where I can really pick up on, okay, I see what you did there with English translation. Yeah, that, that means the same thing, but it's definitely not the same to know what they're literally saying. I don't give it a pass, but it's only because Latin and English are closer together than Japanese and English. So that's 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 my only caveat. Sure, sure, but just like the idioms and you know the way people say things, um, you know that you, that's really what gets lost in translation. That's true. I don't I don't deny it. But when they said like um, what is it a wood wood uh, lumberjack or like coal maker whatever it is when they were trying to describe the general initially uh, when he was mm. following them in the beginning I was like. Okay, what do they actually say? Like, what what are they actually saying? Yeah, when I used to work with immigrants, and even some people from Laredo, which is almost like being from a foreign country, if you're from Laredo, Texas. But um, I would notice people would literally say to me in Spanish, like, "Oh, you know, hair of the tongue," and I'd be like, "Bella la lengua." Like, what do you mean right now when you say hair of the tongue? Uh, like I don't even know what that means. Like, what are you talking about? Sounds like a metaphor or a you know saying. Yeah, and it's an idiom. And when you say someone like has the hair of the tongue, or it, it just means that you're speaking no filter. You're just saying the truth as it is. Oh, I see. I, oh, interesting. I thought like with hair of the tongue. Uh, it means like, oh, look at this like fool because he's trying to like oh, pick at a yeah. hair that he got stuck in his you. tongue. Which I'm like, okay, I guess that when, makes sense. When you're talking to somebody, you literally hear them say "hair of the tongue," and I'm just like, what? What does that eat? <laughs> what? What? That also may be a cultural thing as well. Yeah. So I gotta, no, definitely. Yeah. And they're like, no filter. Like you just speak your mind. You don't sugarcoat. And I'm like, oh, okay. ah, so AKA blunt. Got yeah, 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 yeah. I was like, oh. But I'm just yeah. So you so you notice those things if you have any ability like in bilingual. See when you look at other things. Yeah, because there's definitely a lot of coarse language in this in terms of the English translation. So I just wonder like they're throwing around uh, shithead a lot. Definitely the two guys call each yep. other that. That's though. funny. I barely noticed that. You're right, but I, I just completely glossed over it in my mind. I noticed it. Yeah, for the era, yeah, it stands out. But. Um... But yeah, I guess starting with final thoughts, let's go over to uh, how about you, Eric? What do you? Uh, what's your summations for this one? Now you can cut this out, but uh, I was watching sure. like a round table of quote unquote white guys. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Talking about Blue Beetle, 
the other day on YouTube, uh, and and the one guy was because because one guy was like, oh, I hate the family. Like the characters are so annoying. Blah blah blah, and you know, like they're so crude. Those pin, he said pendejos, and <laughs> I was just like, oh my god, why does that sound so crazy? Like coming out of him in the context of this conversation, like yeah, I don't know. It was it was. I'm not saying I was offended or anything. It was just like, whoa, that is just wild. Yeah, it sounds like it's a bit much. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's nice to have a filter, not use the, the hair of the tongue. <laughs> Point to you, sir. <laughs> I'm just going to say those guys are racist anyway. Well, you never know. But I don't know what's in their heart. Fair enough. But But Eric, final thoughts. Okay. Um, so, you know, as everyone knows now, I had this different memory of this movie before today. And I always thought this was based on that false memory. I always thought it was a good movie. But but if not for the Star Wars connection, I didn't necessarily think it a great movie or something that I was in any hurry to revisit. But after seeing the real movie now... Oh my god, I really fell in love with the movie. Like, really did. Um, And, you know, I'm familiar with some other samurai films for sure. Not necessarily Kurosawa. And I just loved how this was in in the genre, but then so different. It was, like, really different. Like, it doesn't even... Well, I guess you wouldn't even call it a samurai movie, maybe. Because it's more those other elements. Um... Uh, like the comedy and the oh, and I was going to say that too. Um, the other thing I thought of besides Sullivan's Travels was all this talk and focus on like the the lower class in universe. Um, just once again reminded me of part of the reason I think Andor is so amazing because uh, Star Wars is an analog for like the samurai universe or just these types of movies in general, and I. I, I loved to finally see the less important people in the Star Wars universe for once and really focus on them. And and even though they're the lower classes or the forgotten people, how much impact they can still have on, on many, many things. And, and that's what the peasants did in this movie as well. Um, hmm. I incredibly love this movie. Uh, I had to, I have to be crass for at least a moment and just say on top of everything, I think that is great about the princess on top of all that, she is flaming hot at the same time. Um, and that does not hurt at all. Um, I just, man, I, I just, and I just love like almost every character. I, the peasants really annoyed me and, and really pushed it a bit for me, but, but I, I could look past that and, and it's, it's fine in the grand scheme of things, but while actually watching, it was difficult at times. Um, I'll, I'll just mention because I'm trying to get you guys a sponsorship with uh, Rotten Tomatoes but uh, this film has 96% <laughs> with the critics uh, 92% with the audiences um, mm. yeah and uh, I, I love this movie I know you don't normally do ratings but I'm giving it a really strong 4.5 out of 5 and it has now made it on my list of all time favorite movies which is currently at 120 Nice. Uh, Isaac, do you want to go next or or me? 
No, I'll let you go next, my friend, please. What did you uh what are your final thoughts, Caleb, for the Hidden Fortress? Oh, I thought it was a lot of fun. Um Yeah, again, I had to partway through watching I had to put my expectations aside just because not just what Eric was saying, but knowing for so many years that a lot of people said that, oh, this was such a direct inspiration for Star Wars. So I'd spent the early half kind of looking for it. And then I just had to be like, okay, put that side to bed and just enjoy this as a as my next Kurosawa film. Um, but, you know, I think all the characters are a lot of fun. Um, I don't think that this is one of his, like, heavy hitters. I, I wasn't necessarily hugely emotionally moved, as I can occasionally find myself watching his films. But I had a lot of fun with the the uh, the peasants when they were in their good comedy bits occasionally like eric mentioned yeah they can be a little bit annoying and by the end i felt like i'd had enough of them but for the main cast especially the princess i thought that there was a lot there and even though we don't get too much with that turn with the uh, what's his name again toda tarakoro tarakoro excuse me tarakoro yeah even though his turn you know they didn't give it that much time for whatever reason, I just found that very impactful, and especially the scene. I love the way they framed it when she's singing that song, and he, we just see the back of him, and he's looking at her. And partway through the song, he looks away. Something about the way that they just they pulled that off, I felt was one of the more impactful uh, shots in the movie. Completely agree. And so, yeah, definitely a strong movie. Yeah, all around. Really enjoyed it, and I look forward to seeing it again. I feel like maybe I'd get more of it, get more out of it on a second viewing. Especially without that Star Wars distraction uh, kind of in the way up, up at the front side. Uh, but how about you, Isaac? Um, I have similar feelings with everybody else. Uh, I hate this film. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, sorry. No, this film's great. This film's, this film's amazing. It's well shot. It's well directed. Um, you know, every, everything about it is great. I, I definitely love it. And I really strongly recommend people go out and watch this. And for no reason uh to watch it for the star wars connection just watch it as it's film it's uh by the film itself uh because i think it stands on its own uh it literally is just because of north americans or really i guess just americans and canadians i don't know about the mexicans uh <laughs> connecting it to star wars That's it. hey I, I gotta be careful when i say that. i get that but i'm just saying don't forget like, about the brits don't forget about the brits I don't know. They're not a part of North America. What are you talking about? Hey, you got to throw them in there. I don't, I don't. I wonder how Mexicans, because I know Mexicans love manga, or at least the younger generation love manga and anime. Yes. So yeah, that'd be interesting. See, the reason I say that, and I know it does sound like you know, just incredibly disrespectful to uh, my Mexican uh, brothers, sisters, <laughs> well, those, and other you know genders. I, it does seem rude. It's just like you know. Unfortunately, the country next to us is America, and Mexico often gets ignored in North America. Uh, Stan, whenever everyone thinks North America, it's like, but do you guys include Mexico as well? Because they're it's okay. They don't even know what Canada is, other than another option besides the United States. That's other than that, they know nothing else. I guess there is that, but uh, hey, uh, yeah, yeah, anyway, I don't, I don't really mind. That's fine. But I'm just saying, like, I, I want their take on this as well. They're, they're a part of North America just as much as I am. Anyway, it doesn't, doesn't matter. My point being uh, is that I yeah, definitely recommend this uh, film to everybody and want, despite our uh, this connection to Star Wars, it no, it just doesn't matter. Like, um, I'm this film stands as like, I, I, I wish that uh, moniker and that's um, 
stigma went away. It's not stigma, but you know what I mean. Uh, that comparison went away because loosely based, like there's some stuff here that is loosely connected to stuff, but not really. No, like Lucas it is not a one for one remake. It, it never was. Uh, he mm. just took the aspects that he liked of the film and obviously, or at least stood out to him, excuse me, and he put them into his movie. So uh, and that's the right, that's the, the correct thing to do is that it's not a complete remake. But I definitely would have loved in another universe to have explored the Lucas's um, uh, hidden fortress because that was the initial thing. Oh. Remember he was uh, initially going to, he wanted to get the rights to remake uh, the film over in America. So... I definitely would have liked to see what that version would have looked like um, and how he would have done it and what period and era he would have set it in. If he would have done it in Japan or if he would have done it somewhere else in the world, I would have been interested to see. I don't know if it would have been done well or not, but hey, it's just something that we may never know. Yeah, that's that's fair. And uh, yeah, I guess speaking of Lucas, I'm very excited to get into the next section of this uh, little mini retrospective, which is THX 1138. Oh boy, it's it's been a few years since I've seen it, but I think this will be my fourth viewing. So I've definitely got some pre-baked thoughts coming in. If I may, I had two final thoughts. I post final thoughts. Sorry. Post post thoughts. Go. Sure. One I meant to say during the the core conversation. The other, again, the synapses fired when I was listening to Isaac. I do that a lot, don't I? Uh, the one I meant to mention further was or <laughs> earlier was. And I've said this before, maybe not around you guys, maybe around you guys, but I've thought this since the first time I saw uh, samurai movies of like the 50s and early 60s, that I was always struck by the look of them in general, like the cinematography and and film quality. Mm. Um, and it's similar to how I was struck the first time I jumped into French New Wave. And I always wonder why like these movies of this era look so authentic oftentimes more so than hollywood movies at the same time period um but also i lament that when you start to watch japanese film as they progress into the 70s and then the 80s and beyond they just lose this type of look i'm speaking generally of course uh and i wonder do you guys ever think about that do you notice that you ever have feelings about it like I do? Like it's like it's almost like a lost art in of itself. No, yeah, I can. I mean, so many of them become much more flashy and a little bit over the top uh, with the, the Japanese kind of. Uh, it becomes more exploita- exploitation. Yes. A lot of their samurai flicks. And yeah, some of the artistry gets shed for, for extreme violence <laughs> is what it, a lot of it becomes. It's almost like pre-anime in a way, where they, where the theatricality is still there, but like, and I'm just thinking of like Street Fighter and how like <laughs> animated and and nonsensical and exploitative that can get. Yes. Um, yes. But, so yeah, and it's, it's it feels really dirty in comparison to this, where there's a lot of dirt in this film, but it it, feel, it, it looks cool. Like the, the the shots of it are are really like spectacular and and uh, pleasing to the eye. Yeah, and it kind of reminds me of like how crystal clear and 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 modern like something like uh, Doctor Strangelove looks. Mm. It's like how does this pop so much like this black white movie from the mid '60s and, and look so modern at the same time? And I, I get that feeling when I watch a lot of samurai movies from this time period, um, production wise. And then and then the thought I thought of um, listening to Isaac 
while I certainly agree, agree, obviously, seeing it anew, like this is certainly not shot for shot uh, with A New Hope and Star Wars, but I still think there are so many enough uh, connections and nods, loose nods um, in Star Wars to this that that I would kind of put it in, in the same place I put the comparison that people use ridiculously, which is comparing something like Avatar to Dances with Wolves, because somehow that makes it terrible, um, or or just um, a a uh, a copy, a um, unoriginal or whatever, because because the way I see that comparison is like how I see this comparison with Star Wars, which is I see plenty of connections, but there's still their own separate things that exist very separately and, and have their own artistic integrity. Even if I still at the same time, see tons and tons of connections. Or well, I guess for us, for, for at least Caleb and I's sake, there's aliens and then there's Leviathan. Leviathan clearly stole everything from aliens. Uh, this just borrows idea like, or star Wars 77 borrows ideas that were in this film uh, loosely, but does, uh, does them differently. Yeah. And one day Isaac, well, I'll, I'll make you watch Carnosaur 2. And that's the real carbon copy. Every right. plot point, every character. Right. It, it is the same film, just with little shitty dinosaur puppets running around. It's crazy. I forgot <laughs> about that. Yeah, I forgot about that. I recommend Carnosaur 2. Everyone go see it. Oh, dear. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, but, but take us home, Isaac. Take us home. Well, first I gotta ask Caleb oh. for THX 1138B. Are we reviewing both the theatrical version and the student film? Now, why, why are you throwing in the B there? Is that, is that part of the title? I thought it was just THX 738. I'm pretty sure it was, right? Or am I just uh, am I just like high on drugs? Eric, guy in the chair, please. No, no. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's just 1138. I thought it was 1138B, but maybe I'm just incorrect in that. Maybe the short film. I'm, I'm not sure. Well, yeah, I think that's what he was saying. I think he was implying it was the short film title. Or maybe I'm wrong about that. So we need a ruling here. Sorry. I typed in the wrong thing. Let me type in nope. the right thing. And make oh, the, the title of the short film was Electronic Labyrinth, THX 1148, 4EB. Ah, thank you very much, sir. Okay, well, anyway, are we? I assume that'll probably come up in the discussion. Uh, unless it's, uh... Sure. If we can track it down, I, I know you've got it on that, that fucking Blu-ray. Um, <laughs> which I will be giving but, back to you shortly still. <laughs> I'm just playing this by the way. I actually don't care. I've, I've had it recorded for a long time now on TCM. It's just been sitting there waiting. Even still you would, uh, physical media trumps uh, uh, online streaming media. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I've, I've had my copy for a long time now still unopened because I was saving it to watch it with my cousin but I don't think he's ever going to come. So. Oh and the short film's on YouTube. So yeah, we can watch it. Fifteen minutes. We're fine. We're we're definitely fine. Um, well, I guess to end this off, ladies and gentlemen, between the affiliated, thank you for listening uh, to us ramble on about this film again. Hopefully, you were pleasantly entertained and it was intellectually stimulating. Eric, as always, thank you, sir. Uh, hopefully, you know we also uh, fired those synapses of yours, and you uh, <laughs> feel like you can go out tomorrow and be like, "I'm gonna play three rounds or th- do three Sudoku puzzles in one day." There you go. There you go. And thank you, Caleb, for your time and whatnot. And um, till next time, everybody. 
Next time you see a hidden fortress with a bunch of sticks of uh, with gold inside of them, are you going to turn them over to the authorities, or are you just going to, like, squat there? Because I got the zoning laws around that area. Maybe, like, like hey, whereas this wasn't in, like, the, the city zoning law plans. What's, what gives and whatnot? <laughs> Anyways, till next time. Peace. I'm getting drunk now. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> that long break, I had a couple glasses in between. Uh, of course, that happened. Well, I'm totally sober. I'm just getting drunk on this movie. <laughs>